It is the 200 level, Mike Carpenter from the basement for episode 86. Of course, we'll focus on the last dance, and I would argue, and I think a lot of people probably agree, that last night was the best one-two punch that we've had so far this series with a couple of just incredible moments. It's great filmmaking, super entertaining. I know it's a bit of a love letter, and I know the bias questions that have come into play. I get it, because there is some hero worship going on with Jordan, but I'm doing part of it too, because I'm loving every minute of this, and it's nostalgic for sure, but also a great case study in leadership, for better or worse. And last night really got into the pros and cons of Jordan as this tyrannical, as some would say, leader, and the end of episode seven, I think, will be what most people take away from this entire series. We'll get into that later with Trevor and Harry, and we got other things to talk about, specifically Illini football. Illini basketball, all quiet on the Western Front in terms of Chandi Brown. Maybe we'll get some news about that this week. But overall, I think people are feeling pretty good about that. It's the complete opposite side of the spectrum when it comes to Illinois football, specifically recruiting, and even more specific, in-state recruiting. And uh, in a second here, I want to start with a little bit of an exchange that I had last night that I thought was interesting. And I've been thinking about on a variety of fronts. Before we get to that, though, a reminder that the 200 level is brought to you by DP Doe, online at dpdoe.com for all the best deals and prices. And here's the best part. If you live in Champaign-Urbana, they deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana. So go online. You can stay at home, stay safe. And DP Doe will bring their delicious calzones to you. Order online at dpdo.com. Also, 4th and Kirby online at 4th and Use coupon code 200 level or the 200 level to get 10% off your order. And here's another great thing they have all the time 24 7, 365. You can get two shirts, buy two shirts, get one free. That's buy two shirts, get one free. Put the coupon code on top of that. You're in pretty good shape. 4th and Also, State Farm agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com for all your insurance needs. And not only are they insurance experts, but they have your local interest at heart. Everybody in this office, Champagne Urbana, born and raised, their local products. That's brianismyguy.com. Also, Alana Inquirer and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Okay, so wanted to start off today's episode before we get to Trevor and Harry with. An article that I read last night, this is from News Gazette's Bob Osmussen, and we follow each other on Twitter and, in fact, had an exchange, uh, some messaging back and forth last night. Very cordial, very civil. And before I even get into this article, I do want to start by saying there are, I can't, I don't know if I can say zero, there are few local media personalities that I just don't like if that makes sense. Um, So for example, if I criticize something that Bob Osmussen wrote, it has nothing to do with him, the person. It is certainly not personal, even though I know that the way that I might write things on Twitter or say things here on the podcast may come off as very direct. And I got to give him kudos for sending me a message last night. And for a second, I had to stop and think, okay, am I just being a keyboard warrior here? Is it easy to sit behind my phone screen or my computer screen, read someone else's article, criticize it, and go about my life? Would I actually have a conversation with that person and tell them why I disagreed with what they wrote? Well, in the case of last night, yes. And again, in a cordial manner. Here's the article that sort of raised my eyebrow, maybe both eyebrows, because I... I'll just give you the headline. Will an Illinois football player win the Heisman Trophy in 2020? The 2019 race reminds us to never say never. Last year showed anything is possible and raced for the Heisman Trophy. So this is an article that Bob wrote for, I believe, Sunday's News Gazette. It was posted yesterday afternoon on Twitter, and it gets into how, well, we couldn't have predicted Joe Burrow, and certainly there are other Heisman Trophy winners that you could not have predicted. 
but let's just start with realism here. No one on this Illinois football team next year is going to win the Heisman Trophy. And yes, you could always make the argument, well, why not? Anything's possible. Yes, I guess anything is possible. But if we were really handicapping this thing, Brandon Peters, probably your best case for a Heisman Trophy, is getting maybe one in 10,000 odds in Vegas. I mean, I don't even know if there are odds on Brandon Peters winning the Heisman Trophy. Keep in mind, this is an Illinois team that, in terms of rankings for next year, on the field for 2020, we're looking at a team somewhere between 40 and 60, depending on the rankings. And 40 is very much the high end. This team is firmly in the middle of the pack, not just in the Big Ten, where they might be a little bit further back, but in the case of college football overall, very much in the middle of the pack. So you look at Heisman Trophy winners, for the most part, they are on teams that are winning 10, 11, 12 games. And for the most part, they are on blue blood programs. There are exceptions. And in a conversation that Bob and I had, he mentioned uh, Lamar Jackson. Certainly played for Louisville. But keep in mind, Louisville have been getting better and better throughout the years. Before that, you had Teddy Bridgewater. Lamar Jackson also is a generational talent, you could argue. That was where I had a little bit of a disagreement with Bob in that example. Another example, Robert Griffin III for Baylor. But again, we're talking one of the best college football quarterbacks of the last 20 years. There were some other names that he listed in our conversation, and he admitted that he was not comparing Brandon Peters to those. He was, I think, making more of the argument that we have found out before that you can win a Heisman Trophy not being on a blue blood and kind of coming out of left field. So that, in and of itself, is true. However, this goes back to an earlier article that Bob Osmussen wrote after the Red Box Bowl, basically saying that this Illinois team was primed to make a run for the Big Ten West title in 2020. When I'm looking at things, statistically, I test, you name it, and then you factor in the lack of recruiting. I just don't see how that's possible. This team, as I spoke with Lon about last week, they could win seven, maybe eight games. I don't see it. I'm not nearly as high on this team as Lon and Jeremy are. I've tried to get them to talk me into it, and I also know that I'm letting my long-term frustrations with Lovey Smith sort of paint my picture for this roster coming up, which in and of itself is capable of winning enough games to make a bowl game. I'm aware of that, but also not all that excited for what lies ahead in 2021-2022. So I need to catch myself and stay in that box. 2020 Illini football, what's the best case scenario? I would say the absolute best case scenario was 8-4. and four. But even that equation means that other Big Ten West teams are going to inevitably disappoint and you are going to play above any sort of reasonable expectations. So... This article that Bob had written back in January, post-Red Box Bowl, talking about Illini are primed and in position, in the best position they've been in a long time to maybe win the Big Ten West, I took issue with that based on the fact that there aren't really that many signs that would lead you to believe that. The biggest issues of the 2020 team, the defensive line, you got a bunch of guys, but mostly question marks. Linebacking core, you feel okay about. Your secondary with Beeson coming in especially, you feel okay about. Your specialist, you feel really good about. Offensively, running back is something that I think we gloss over and don't give enough credit to Dre Brown. And even Reggie Corbin, who I know struggled his senior year, but he's still a pretty special running back. You can't just slot someone in and expect them to be as good as a sixth-year Dre Brown, which was an incredible story by any measure, right? But I don't think that we are giving enough 
credence to the running back position and thinking, well, wait a second, we don't have a proven commodity back there. And if you count on Mike Epstein to come in and just be a stud with all the injury concerns, I don't know. Maybe he's another Dre Brown in waiting. Okay, so let's even go with that and say, okay, running back position, Mike Epstein. I know Chase Brown is another name that some people are high on. Okay, great. Quarterback, yeah, you feel good as long as Brandon Peters can stay healthy. That's the best quarterback situation you're coming into in some time. Probably have to go back to Shieldhouse for when you felt good about a returning quarterback. Because no offense to Wes Lunt, the questions always persisted with him. With Brandon Peters, certainly not a perfect quarterback, but he's fine. You can win games with him. Wide receiver, again, if they stay healthy, feeling okay. So as I go position by position and the offensive line may be your strength, you're thinking, okay, this can all work. But I continue to fall back on this idea of, well, wait a second, we are saying all of this, assuming that the coaching staff truly knows what they're doing. I'm not convinced of that yet. You had the four-game win streak last year. It was awesome. Credit to the coaches and the players for finding their way to six wins last year when we all looked at it at two and four and thought, game over. This thing's done. And I know that it may be a little bit cynical of me to come on here and say, after that, that I don't buy stock in this coaching staff's ability to win enough games. But what scares me about that four-game win streak, the idea that it might be a bit of a mirage, is that it was predicated on getting takeaways at an extremely high level, that you did have some luck, and you certainly created a bit of your own luck, and that I don't know how well that translates over the course of a 12-game season. Defensively, there are still major issues. You did see progress last year. You absolutely did. But again, turnovers masked some of those other areas on defense that are still not up to snuff and won't be enough in this Big Ten West. Which leads me back to Bob's article yesterday, talking about, well, okay, Brandon Peters, why not? He specifically said why not in this article, which I find to be a very... We say that in jest on this show. Well, why not? You know, and and I say that as just some sort of filler. I can't actually use that in an argument to say, well, guys, consider this as a possibility because why not? Brandon Peters, no offense to him, he ain't gonna win the Heisman. Because in order to do so, Illinois would have to probably go ten and two, be a surprise Big Ten West title winner. Brandon Peters statistically would have to be the best quarterback in the nation. He can't be second or third best if you're at Illinois playing. You have to be the best statistical quarterback in the nation if you're going to get any sniff of the Heisman Trophy. And this offense is really not all that great in terms of racking up yardage. We saw it last year. Bottom third of the Big Ten in terms of yardage. They got some points, but they often found it hard to sustain drives, and they certainly didn't have flashy air raid style offensive numbers. That's just not going to happen. So it leads me to think, well, why did... You write this article in the first place. And again, a civil back and forth with Bob yesterday, and I gave him all the reasons why I think that, okay, I understand that technically anything is possible, but here are all the reasons why this is not even on the radar of the Heisman Committee. They wouldn't, they don't even know who Brandon Peters is, maybe. <laughs> and why would they? Because where Illinois football is as a program, they are not in position to be starting a Heisman campaign for anybody. You may remember back in 2009, there was the ill-fated 7-9 to Heisman campaign from the DIA for Juice Williams, Aurelius Ben. I remember feeling pretty high on that team, thinking that there was enough NFL talent, which there was, for them to bounce back to like an 8-4 and season. Of course, they went 3-9. and Juice was erratic. 
Aurelius Spen was fine, but they did not even sniff the Heisman Trophy. And then you go back to the, all the great players that have played at Illinois. You go to Kurt Kittner in 2001, great quarterback on a team that went to the Sugar Bowl and won an outright Big Ten title. And if I recall, was not even top 10 Heisman voting. Did he get any votes? Go back to Dick Butkus or Simeon Rice, all-time players in college football history. Didn't even sniff it. And they got their own accolades. They got different awards, for sure, and they got recognition. But that just goes to show that at Illinois, where this program is at, we're in no position to have a Heisman candidate. And an article like this, I would rather the article, by anyone over the News Gazette, be about, okay, how is this team going to find their way to a bowl game? Or maybe be focusing on the fact that the 2021 recruiting class is still abysmal. Currently, it is 14th out of 14 in the Big Ten, still. Nationally, you're behind Arkansas State and Ohio. Not Ohio State, but Ohio University at 83. You have two commits. You haven't had an in-state commit in, I think, a year and a half. Right now, all top 20 kids in the state of Illinois, class of 2021, have been accounted for with other schools. You don't need Illinois recruits necessarily to succeed. But that's only if you are really kicking ass in Florida, Georgia, Texas, California, And as we sit here with the fewest amount of recruits in the Big Ten by far, and in terms of national rankings, one of the most puny recruiting classes that you could think of at this point, why are we wasting our time writing an article about Brandon Peters maybe winning a Heisman, which he won't, when this football program is in disarray? That's the bigger thing here. I mentioned this to Bob in the conversation we have. I said I questioned the motive of writing this article. I've questioned the News Gazette and DWS before. This concerned me back in 2013 and 2015. I think those were the years. Two years that at SJ Broadcasting, we were making our pitch to be the new flagship home for Illinois sports. We felt like we were in pretty good position because the sports show was well established at that point, that we had some good personalities, that we could fill things out as needed, and we made our pitch, right? Now, I don't know what we were lacking in terms of DWS, because in terms of presence, you could argue that DWS, certainly back in the early part of this millennium, they had a lot of clout. But you find that as time has evolved, they're losing it because they don't evolve. News Gazette has not evolved. They're stagnant companies with stagnant visions, or if you can even call it a vision. So when I look at something like this, it just seems to me like transparent DIA marketing mouthpiece materials from someone that nice guy. He's a fine writer. And yet this is what gets published in the news Gazette. How many people, when they looked at that headline, just said, yeah, right. And moved on. I think most any realistic or logical person would have looked at that and said, is this like a funny article? Is this tongue in cheek? No, it was not tongue in cheek which leads me to believe that the only logical way that this thing can get through the vetting process and actually get printed in the paper is by the News Gazette having some sort of edict that we need to write positive things about this football program when all the evidence suggests that, oh boy, it's kind of tenuous. So it was disappointing. I give Bob credit for reaching out. I would happily talk to him on the phone, in person. I mean, we can't really do that right now, but if we could, and It led me to a bit of reflection last night on when I do critique articles like this or takes like this, would I be able to say the same thing to someone face-to-face or over the phone that I would through a Twitter comment? 
And last night proved that, yeah, I could. And again, I, I feel a little bit bad in that I don't want it to come off as personal. It's not personal towards Bob, and it's really not personal towards anyone in the News Gazette. I'm thinking macro as I usually do. This is a larger issue that I've seen my entire life with that paper and with that radio group. This is where I got to give Lauren take credit. He will call it as he sees it. And unfortunately, he's a bit of an outlier in this case. Now, maybe other guys are saying that, but I got to give Lauren take credit as well. His personality is still as such where when he says something, you listen. They haven't had a lot of guys like that over the years. And instead, it has just taken its once vibrant sports coverage into whatever this is. You know, it's... (laughs) It's the equivalent of state media just in a sports lens, which fortunately is not nearly as dangerous as actual state media would be. But when I read things like this, it's just you shake your head as someone had responded to Bob yesterday. Did your account get hacked? Because if you read this thing, best intentions or not, and even if there's not one iota in Bob or any other writer over there in their mind that says, well, we need to write something positive here. I can't read that and keep a straight face when we're looking at all the statistics and we're looking at the evidence and we're saying, well, wait a second. Yeah, this team coming up this year, they can make a bowl game. They could. But to even talk about a Big Ten West title or a potential Heisman Trophy winner is absurd. That's what it is. And that's not even taking into consideration what lies ahead in 2021 and 2022. We got a problem here with this football program. I said this the last summer that I was on 93.5. I said, what the hell is going on over there? Now, granted, they found their way to a few more recruits, and they sort of put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound for that 2020 class. But overall, you know, we can sit here and we can try to spin this into some sort of, well, they're working with their own template. You didn't pay Lovey to be in this position. You did not pay Lovey to be in a position where even if they do have success this year, you're essentially screwed going forward. I know that in the past with other coaches, I will get really fired up and then they'll prove me wrong. And I would love to be proven wrong about Lovey. I was proven wrong about Underwood, for example, where after the Illinois-Missouri game, along with a lot of other people, I was thinking, well, where's this thing going? He found a way to make it work and seems to have established what he's going to do here, how he's going to do it. And to his credit, You know, he flipped that switch. Whatever needed to be flipped, he did it. He accomplished it and now has an amazing recruiting class coming in, seems to have pipelines to any place that he would need to continue to bring in talent and continue to win at a pretty high level. So was I wrong about that? Yeah, I was. Absolutely. But I was also reacting to what was in front of us at the time. With Lovey Smith, you have an even longer trail of evidence right here. Going back to 2016 when you hired him. The recruiting, if you were to chart it, the graph is a downward trend. You did have some recruiting success early, and fortunately that has led you to this position in 2020 to feel the roster where you can win six, seven, I guess, eight games. Not counting on it, but I guess you could. And yet it's a downward trajectory. Is 2020 the peak? Is it the pinnacle of the Lovey Smith experiment at Illinois? That's kind of what we're being told. Because anything you're hearing is about this team coming up. You aren't hearing anything about 2021 recruiting or beyond. And that's understandable because there's not much to speak of. But when I see the lone newspaper in this town essentially write something that could have been written by a marketing intern at the DIA, I don't know who you're trying to convince. No one's buying it. And we see that 
in ticket sales. We see that in the overall lack of excitement about a football program that just made their first bowl game in five years. And you wouldn't even know it based on the excitement level. So it's a really weird position to be in to think that it's a hire that I think we were all fine with and to be honest, all excited about bringing some major clout to Illinois football. And yet, as we sit here in 2020, and I look forward to 2021 and 2022, it's like you're at the top of that hill on a roller coaster, and you feel like the bottom's just about to fall out. At which point, what do you do? Bring in a college coach to pick up the pieces? It's, it's frustrating to think that you can make a bowl game this year, you could have your best year yet, and that isn't going to parlay itself into future success. You made a bowl game last year. Northwestern, on the other hand, well, they went, what, 2-10? and 10? Three and nine. I mean, obviously one of those wins against Illinois. They have a much better recruiting class than you do. And I know that Fitzgerald has been much more established and he's been there a longer time than Lovey. But they had no momentum. None. And yet they're finding a way to get it done. You had this momentum. You had a bye week after this winning streak. After that win at Michigan State, you had an entire bye week to let that sink in and go out and sell this program. And what did you come up with? Two recruits. None from the state of Illinois. I look back, and this is apples and oranges here, I look back to Thad Mata, Bruce Weber. That You could have hired Thad Mata, and the trajectory of Illinois basketball would have been very different. For the better. It would have worked out better. As much as Bruce Weber did have that success early, great. He was amazing those first three years, but we know long-term Thad Mata would have been the better choice and would have kept this ship rolling post-Bill Self. You didn't make that choice. That is Gunther's folly. Whitman's folly, when all is said and done, Maybe that you had, I know, a coachy coach. He kind of drives us nuts, but you had P.J. Fleck with his ability to recruit in Chicago, achieving massive success at Western Michigan, came in in Lovey's first year and kicked Illinois' ass, and then went on to Minnesota, and look at him now, building a program that will compete year in, year out for Big Ten West titles. And he may stay there for a while. They're paying him, and they extended him. And we'll see if there's an SEC school that comes calling, but maybe that's just the niche that's perfect for him. But that could have been Illinois. So it is easier said than done. At the time, would I have taken Lovey Smith over P.J. Fleck? I guess so, because I would have allowed my bias against P.J. Fleck and his goofiness to sort of paint my perception of him. I would have said, I don't know if I want that goofiness here. And we've all said that as Illini fans. Well, <laughs> thank God we don't have P.J. Fleck and all his shenanigans down here. He wins. We would have gotten over it very quick. He would have been our guy. Crazy as he is, he would have been our guy because he would win football games. He was right there for you, and he didn't take him. I say that understanding that hindsight is twenty twenty. It is easy to make that call now, but I don't know how difficult it would have been to make that call back in 2016. This is part of Whitman's legacy. I think he can get Illinois out of it, but I do wonder, in a moment of candor, if he would acknowledge to people that he knows, people he's close with, that, yeah, I'm disappointed in the way this Lovey Smith thing has worked out. He said all the right things. He's written letters to the fan base about it, praising Lovey Smith and his ability to get this football program back on some sort of solid ground, which I would argue how solid of ground this is in the first place. He's trying to sell it the best he can, but you cannot sell a turd. You can't. And that is the unfortunate position the DIA is in. I express all these frustrations with the DIA, with the News Gazette Sports Department, but also recognize that for them to generate revenue and to sell ads, they need a product worth selling. I can recall walking into businesses when I had to do sales, 
And the first couple of years I struggled in sales because I was trying to sell everything, all the kitchen sinks at 93.5 or really all the sister stations, which I was not directly involved in. I had a harder time doing that. But when I just started selling J show, that was easier because I could say, well, I'm on it sometimes and I know these guys and I know who's listening. And I was able to just talk to someone and not have to pepper it with hyperbole or fluff or any of that. I was able to tell them straight up, this is the show that I'm a part of, that I really believe in. I know that the listeners believe in it, yada, yada. And that tended to bring me a lot more success in terms of sales because I was able to be authentic about it. For Whitman, he's in the unenviable position of trying to sound authentic when talking about a football program that is stagnant right now. And that might be a kind word. The bottom is going to fall out at this point if they don't figure it out. Transfer you, okay. Bill Snyder at Kansas State, I guess that's your template. Good luck. Mike White back in the 80s at Juco Kids, okay. Well, how sustainable was that? As much as we lionize Mike White. And you know, that's also taking into consideration that Mike White was an ace recruiter with an amazing personality. Levy Smith is not exactly someone who can sell a, what, ketchup popsicle to an old lady wearing a white glove on a hot summer day. He doesn't have that ability. I thought he was going to because of Lovey Smith. I thought at least that these high school kids in Illinois, their dads, would remember when he was the Bears coach and say, yeah, you know, Lovey's a cool guy, which, yeah, Lovey is a cool guy. I thought that stoicism was going to lend itself well on the recruiting trail. And it leads me to think, well, wait a second. I know he's not Mr. Personality, but it should be better than this, right? So why are they struggling so much? And it leads to the inevitable speculation that he's lazy. And that's speculative. And after watching the Jordan documentary last night and all the speculation back in 1993 about, hey, did Jordan's gambling lead to his dad's death? That's irresponsible. It may be irresponsible of me to even broach that. But it's hard to not let that thought creep in. And if I'm thinking that, as a fan, certainly a cynic, so again, the bias is probably in this opinion, okay? I I acknowledge that. But if I'm a high school kid and I got P.J. Fleck working his ass off to get me to come to Minnesota. And I got Lovey with the slow play. Where am I going to go play college football? Seems like an easy choice. This is not a time for Illinois football to get in this position of playing too cool for school, playing it slow. No, you got to work your butt off and get out there and get in front of people. And I know you can't do that face-to-face right now, but even when they were getting there face-to-face, they were not landing recruits at the quantity and the quality that they needed to. Yes, he has brought in individual guys that have you in this position in 2020 to make a bowl game for two years in a row. That is true. But even with this on-field success, not being able to parlay that into anything worth a hill of beans in 2021, that leads me to speculate, as many others are, what's going on? There have been moments where I've seen some of these assistant coaches go after fans or haters, so to speak, on Twitter. And it bothers me, but then I think, well, wait a second. Why can't they just turn that around like Michael Jordan would with any perceived slight? Why can't they turn that around and say, you know what? Let's actually screw the fans. We're going to go out there. We're going to recruit the heck out of the Midwest. We're going to bring these guys, and we're finally going to get Illinois guys. We're going to show them. And instead, all I see are, well, day after day of another Illinois guy going to another school. It's frustrating, but the thing is, even with this preamble, which is now approaching 30 minutes, so thank you for your <laughs> thank you for your patience with that. It's frustrating on one hand, but the other hand, the apathy is already starting to creep in because it seems as if the writing is on the wall. 
And that, yeah, if games happen this year and if we can go to the games, okay, all well and good. But if this is what they are selling us as the peak of the Lovey era, which is all they can really do, they need to sell this year because they can't do it next year with the Dublin trip that, well, hell, might not happen if COVID-19 is still a thing. But <laughs> this is just very peculiar when I think about previous coaches, and Ron Zook, for example, goes to a Rose Bowl, the recruiting continued at a very high pace for about the next two and a half years. It was really after 2009, the 3-9 season, where that fell off, right? But there was still this sense that they were going to get this done, that the recruiting was picking up, that the momentum was there. I look back at Ron Turner, okay, maybe that's a little more similar to this. Great success and really more success in a three-year period than Lovey's had at this point, but recruiting never quite picked up, and you're wondering, uh, okay. I remember names like Matt DeLugalecki, a quarterback out of California. I don't think he came here. Maybe he did, but the recruiting, again, just never really picked up for Ron Turner, so you're just sort of treading water at that point, and then the bottom falls out. But I don't know if it ever got as bad as this. I don't know if he had the worst recruiting class in the Big Ten to speak of the year after making his first bowl game. I doubt it in some way. I'd have to go back and look at that, but hell, why would I want to go back and revisit the last two years of the Ron Turner era, or the last three for that matter? So as I wrap this up without belaboring the point, the News Gazette, DIA, these are people that are doing their jobs, and I don't want it to come off as something personal, because again, by all accounts, Bob Osmus is a nice guy. Everyone says that. He's been writing for the News Gazette a long time. He knows what he's doing to an extent. But that kind of article and being fully aware that we are in a quarantine and that you don't have live sports to write about. So, you know, hey, listen, the material's not there. You need to conjure it up. But that was a bridge too far. And it seems like there is a trend at the News Gazette in particular to sell us something that is not there. I don't like that. And in a community where that's the only newspaper we got, I just ask them to do better. That's where an editor needs to come into play and say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what is this? What is this? I think about if we would have been on 93.5 and we had, I mean, okay, Trevor and Harry, the earliest part of Tay and Carp. And if one of them would have said something like that on the air, Lon and I, <laughs> I, I can picture the look that we would have given each other as if, wait, what? Is this? You're joking, right? And we would have had a conversation about it. We would have had fun with it. So again, I, I got to give Bob credit for responding, and I would happily engage in more conversation with him, or really anybody at the News Gazette or the DIA, but I haven't really heard from anyone at the DIA. I don't think I will. I mean, there's people over there that I, back in high school, was invited by someone to come over and interview Bill Self and Brian Cook, and it was very generous of them. They were always very accommodating. But over the years, according to hearsay, again, I can't verify this, but was told that there were people over there that didn't like what I was saying on the air, and they planted a bug in the ear that they needed to in order to sort of hasten my departure. So needless to say, I won't be invited to any DIA luncheons anytime soon. But that is the problem that always comes up in terms of access. So for anyone over the News Gazette, they need the access. They got to play nice to an extent and be very careful with how they verbalize or how they write any sort of criticism. And there's been a lot to criticize with Illinois football. They need to tread carefully if they want that interview with Lovey or Rod Smith or any of those guys. Because Lovey is someone, going back to the Bears, if there was a media guy that got in his crap list, he would be fairly curt and rude at press conferences, Lawrence Holmes being the big one. 
And it just got to a point where the media relationship was not untenable, but tense up there. Hopefully it doesn't get to that point here. But on the other hand, as Lon had mentioned in our interview last Thursday, you know, pop on the show. Pop on Lon and Derek's show. What the hell else are you doing? It's quarantine. Sell the program. He does not sell his own program. So what hope do we have that he can actually sell to recruits? He can't even sell to the fan base. All right, so there's my token Illini football rant for the month. It's time to get Trevor and Harry on. (laughs) Not much for transitions. We do have a really good one-two punch of last dance to talk about. We'll get into a little bit of this Illini football stuff, too, for Harry and Trevor, which I know Harry is a little bit less down on where this program is. Well, at least going into this season. Trevor, we'll let Trevor do his thing, because I think that... You know, there is the one side like Harry and Lon that are really excited for this year coming up. And there are reasons to think that this team could win seven games, right? That's fine. But I think that Trevor, along with myself, that macro view is really eclipsing what might be right in front of us this year. That may not be fair at all on my part, but we'll get into that with these guys. But first things first, time to talk a little bit of Last Dance with Harry Black and Trevor Valise. Last night, I know that you guys might feel the same way, but It seems like every Sunday we've had at least one really good episode. I felt like last night was the best one-two punch that we've had so far because thematically, uh, narratively, how it tied in with uh, even starting with the Pacers return from Michael back in 1995 to the Pacers series ending on that at the end of episode eight. And then, of course, the moment, and let's start with this, at the end of episode seven, the last minute and a half, Jordan's... Uh, let's see, what would we call it? Mission statement, uh, manifesto about being a good teammate or not, or being a nice guy or not. And Harry having played at a much higher level of ath- athletics as either Trevor or myself. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> was that something that is more, I wonder if that's more relatable for you that you've actually been around, you know, legit athletes in a locker room in situations where you face adversity. What was, what stood out in that last minute and a half, and did you was it moving to you as someone that's played at a high level? I'll say it right now. Everyone's talking about the last minute and a half of episode seven, and I didn't feel a damn thing, especially compared to like the end of episode eight, where it actually had to do with something legitimately sad, the passing of a loved one. The end of episode seven was just showing his competitive drive and him basically saying, Something that, yeah, as as an athlete, you do hear it from a lot of different people, depending on how serious they are, that when you have a goal in mind, all that matters is achieving that goal. And if people want to hop on board and do what you're doing in order to achieve that goal, then you'll let them kind of ride your coattails or, you know, come along for the ride. But if they're not willing to put in the effort and they're not willing to put in the uh, the commitment, then you're going to let them kind of go by the wayside. And I just, I don't understand. I don't get why that was sad. I know that maybe he alienated some teammates of his, but he knew he was doing that the whole time. And at the end of the day, people see him as the, the, uh, the great accomplished athlete that he was. And I mean, part of it has to do with that, with um, what he had to do to get there. And so, I mean, the end of it where he's basically saying, you know, if you want to come along, then come along. If you don't, then I don't need you. I, that would just kind of seem more factual than anything else. To me, you mentioned sad. I don't know if it was sad or anything. I think it was compelling in that, you know, he, the emotion behind 
what he was saying and how he says break. And I got to be honest, you know, last night for the first time in a while, I felt like I was teetering back and forth on, okay, is this straight up hero worship? How much bias is in this thing? At that moment, though, I'm thinking, okay, Jordan was always polished, but he's not that good of an actor, you know, and I'm thinking about that last minute and a half as uh, unapologetic, uh, not sad, and yet there was emotion at the end of it, which led me to believe that in his mind, uh, Trevor, he's been carrying a heavy load for like, it's like he can't quite jive. I've said all these terrible things. I've done these things to people that are good people, like a Scott Perel being an example, but it was all because I wanted to win. And yet somehow that drive is still in him enough where he's going to emote and basically be on the verge of tears, which I thought that is, it felt like his head was swimming in it at that point. Yeah. Well, I I think it kind of also feeds back to what he said right before this came out and the quotes that people were talking about when he said, I'm worried everybody's going to hate me after they see this or or something to that effect. And I think it was Ryan Rossillo that tweeted afterwards, I'm still waiting for the part where I'm supposed to hate Michael Jordan, you know, because I I think he has, for whatever reason, this fear that no one's going to understand that he had to do whatever, you know, whatever it takes to win. And I think for some reason in that moment, and then maybe viewing the documentary after it was done, he had this thought that, you know, people are going to think that I'm such a, you know, a bleep hole that it, that it, that it wasn't worth it, that the one didn't outweigh the other. And I think most everyone is disagreeing with that opinion. I do wonder, though, Trevor, the media rounds that Michael was making before this and how he's saying, I hope people don't hate me. I feel like that was calculated damage control or essentially he was setting the expectation that we were going to be flooded with clips of him just being a total sociopathic jerk. And yet last night, even with the Scott Burrell stuff, I'm like, well, he's just kind of joshing him. It ain't that big of a deal. Right, right. So if, I felt like he he was smart to set the expectation beforehand that you guys are going to hate me. I hope you don't hate me. And then we watch her like, no, it's not that big of a deal. No, that's that's I true. I mean, he's obviously very good at, at marketing. Go ahead, Harry. Uh, and yeah, the whole idea of anyone hate. I think anyone that understands athletics in any kind of capacity will understand that <clears throat> everything he was doing. I mean, it's not like he's going out there and poking fun at Scott Burrell or he's telling uh, Tony Kukoc to shoot the damn ball because he's just an a-hole. It's because he is trying to do everything possible to make them the best teammates and the best kind of supporting cast to get to the top of the mountain that he can. As I'm watching last night, so episode seven, we get into the first retirement and then the baseball career. And last week, I felt a little bad about this. Spoiler alert. Did not realize, Trevor, that you didn't know that his dad had died and then he was murdered. Uh, That's all right. And as I was watching that episode, I I do remember as that story was unfolding, I would have been, let's see, I would have been six going on seven in 1993. And then I do remember the retirement and this sort of gut punch that... Whoa, it's it's over. Oddly enough, about a month into that 93-94 season, which we'll get into that, Scottie Pippen's best year, uh, even though it was punctuated by his worst moment. Um, what was the biggest standout to you in the whole uh, first retirement baseball thing? You talking to me? Uh, yeah, Trevor. Trevor. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, you know, the, the, the father death thing, it's kind of weird to wrap your head around. I don't know how necessarily to explain it. It's not like they rush past it or anything. I mean, they spend plenty of time talking about it. But, I mean, I know not everything works this way, but as, as a viewer, I'm thinking, 
well, what is the logic? Like, I want an explanation for this. And obviously, I'm sure he was thinking the same thing when it happened. But, you know, you don't really get an explanation. It's just, well, you, you pulled over to the side of the road one night and got shot, and that's the end of the story. And so, for me, it's sort of like, well, wait a minute. Like, why did that happen? But, you know, I, I understand that there isn't necessarily an explanation for that. Um, and and I, honestly, I, you know, as, as someone, again, who was watching all this in hindsight and did not know any of this as it was happening because I wasn't even alive yet, I hear a lot about, you know, as a kid, you're on, I don't know what it is, like the BuzzFeed, the sports version of BuzzFeed, reading about the greatest conspiracy theories or whatever. And, right. and I become very accustomed to hearing the uh, Michael Jordan was forced into a 18-month retirement and decided to join the White Sox as a bit of a publicity stunt to, to hide behind the David Stern suspension. And I know that this was obviously made by Michael and approved by Michael, but nothing I watched last night, and I know we hit on it in the text thread, made me think that that did happen. Yeah, I would agree with that. You're saying that last night only further solidified your idea that those conspiracy theories are not true. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I it made a lot of sense to me that a guy who just lost his best friend and at the same time before losing his best friend, and I'm talking about his dad, obviously, said that he was super burnt out and tired. It makes sense that he'd want to watch. Like, I, I don't think. And then there was the, the press guy who said a year earlier, Michael told him what he was going to do. Yeah. I don't really think any of that had to do with David Stern. When I was yeah. watching the part about the father and not to belittle it, or, what struck me is there was one moment where Jordan kind of teared up. And here's the thing. And this is where I do think this is for the most part, authentic with his interviews. The waterworks weren't going. For whatever reason in this moment, and I'm sure time has healed a lot of it for him, he didn't have the emotional response about his father's death that I anticipated. I thought that was going to be the crux of the emotion in these two episodes. It was not. But what I found kind of peculiar is just, you know, dad dies, clip of them at the funeral, and then he's like, you know, my dad always said, turn a negative into a positive. And I'm like, yeah, but... Well, that's what I mean. That's what I mean by the whole, like, <laughs> suddenly he was dead. There was no reason why he was dead, not that there needs to be. And then we just sort of, like, moved on. You know, you know what I mean? Yes, I agree. I thought that that was not necessarily bad editing, but maybe they just didn't have... I'm guessing the filmmaker, when he asked that question to Jordan, and not in some sort of manipulative way, but he's thinking, okay, this right here, this is going to be where... He's probably going to have an emotional response. This is going to be right in the middle of the miniseries and people will be blown away. And then he didn't quite get that reaction. So he's in the editing room with the other guys thinking, OK, I guess we just go to baseball now. OK, cool. We'll, right, we'll move on. Right. And, and then he does get that, re that reaction about something entirely different. But yeah, can continue. Well, and then, Harry, I was going to ask you about that, too, if you felt as if the dad storyline, which they do circle back around at the end of episode eight, and I think in a very... Um, a more compelling way than the initial stuff in episode seven about his dad passing away when he beats the Sonics on Father's Day, which I remember that vividly. And when he ran, he sprinted off the court, which I thought that was weird that they didn't show that from the outset. That was the first thing he did was take the ball. The guys surrounded him and then he got up and he sprinted off the court. They didn't show that until about a minute or two later. But did you feel as if um, they were, I guess, comprehensive enough in talking about the dad's death? Because like Trevor, I feel as if, well, two hoodlums killed him, and it was sad. Well, see, here's the thing. I had looked into it a little bit, so I kind of know a little bit of the backstory as far as what had happened with his, um, like, the entire story with his dad, of how he pulled off onto the side of the road. And it wasn't, it, you know, they kind of said a couple times that it was um, – you know, it could have been anyone. This could have happened to anyone. Well, from what I had seen online, 
it sounded like the people had recognized the car as being Michael Jordan's car or Michael Jordan's dad's car. I That's what I was curious that. about, too. Yeah. Yeah, like the license plate said something like UNC 23. The guys who killed him <laughs> later admitted no uh, later admitted that they did know that there was an association with Michael Jordan and the car and that um, they killed him like immediately. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure it's uh, what I read online said that he had died in his sleep. So I, I don't understand why they didn't really touch on that. But what I did, I mean, they did a really good job of kind of making it clear because I had always thought, yeah, I guess that makes sense that he would be forced into this pseudo retirement around the time of like his gambling. But when you watch this, and I don't think it's just the fact that it's it's been produced and directed this way. I think it makes sense if you take everything into consideration. And I'll put burnout at the bottom because you could say you could just insert burnout whenever. But think about sure. it like this. The guy is the best basketball player in the world. He just won his third championship. He has nothing else to prove as far as that goes. He is the biggest brand in the sporting world right now. And on top of all that, his dad dies. I mean, you have all these reasons. And then if you want to go ahead and stick burnout in there anyway, which I feel like a lot of athletes sometimes feel like, you know, wow, this is really beating me down. But then at the same time, it's kind of like, well, this is what I love to do anyway. But when you have all this stuff outside of that just kind of piling on top, I think it kind of makes it look like the idea that he would be forced into this pseudo suspension is kind of more silly than anything else. Yeah, I would agree. And for David Stern, and he briefly touched on it, which by the way, David Stern had passed away about a year or two ago, right? Or maybe just a year ago. He died on New Year's Day this year. That's right. Okay. So yeah. the the footage of him, and he was always this very, you know, soft-spoken, cool businessman. And he his response, I think, like you would mention, Trevor, only further solidified, why would I suspend that money maker. Well, and someone had said he, the uber capitalist David Stern is not going to be suspending his biggest money maker. But to your point, Harry, I was thinking about this as you were speaking on that. So nine years in the NBA for Michael Jordan, he becomes the biggest, most recognizable celebrity in the world, not just sports movies, just the biggest celebrity in the world. And I'm thinking the only equivalency that I can think of, and we can say Muhammad Ali, and, and I can't say that from experience, but certainly he was an icon, but I'm thinking the Beatles, in terms of the nine years that the Beatles were active, or more specifically the seven years they were the biggest band in the world, you could not be a Beatle and go anywhere without being mobbed. And there is a toll that that would take that very few other athletes, or musicians for that matter, ever have to deal with. So the burnout factor is specific, th that kind of burnout is specific to a very small list of people, and you can put the Beatles at the top for music and you'd have to put Michael Jordan at the top for athletes where no other athlete could say, yeah, I relate. I get, I totally get what Michael was going through. You know, what kind of surprises me as well is I know nine years. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a good length of career, but the fact that, they, and I'm sure they, 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 they really have done a good job of showing this, but how in just how massive, how talented, how insanely, huge do you have to be to the point where after nine years in the NBA, you're already seen as the greatest basketball player of all time. Yeah. Because think about it like this, nine years into Kobe's career, we weren't talking about him like that. Nine years into LeBron's career, I don't even know if he had won a championship yet. How do you or at double been? that point in LeBron's career, yeah. and we're still talking yeah. about whether or not it's a debate. Exactly. So, I mean, and then you just go over to other sports. Peyton Manning was in the NFL for 15 years. 
uh, Tom Brady, obviously, 20 years. But I can't think of people who have only been in the league for less than 10 years. And maybe that's, you know, these days, players back in the day didn't play as long or maybe their primes weren't as long. But just the fact that he was in the league for not even 10 years and was still seen as the greatest player on earth of all time, that that's kind of, I mean, that's more a credit to uh, what he had accomplished. Than also, else. some of these games ended like 71 to 70. Oh, it, ugly. Yeah. And he's still averaging more points than like LeBron is now in these games that are finishing like 140 to 130. Trevor, I was watching one of these Bulls Hornets games and I think it was on maybe a week, week and a half ago because they're running through the 98 playoffs now. I think they just had game seven against the Pacers last week, which that was, <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, and I, I don't want to spoil it necessarily because that's what they'll cover next week. But, you know, basketball back then, nostalgia plays a big role in me always kind of idealizing that version of the NBA, but it could get absolutely ugly. And that Hornets series watching it a week and a half ago, brutal. But to the point with that Hornets series that they really focused on was B.J. Armstrong, which, by the way, he he got the most airtime out of anyone not named Michael Jordan last night. B.J. Armstrong. Yeah. And the story, back to this idea that any slight perceived or real Jordan would put that in his bank and he would use it. And uh, I give BJ credit for his candor with it. He acknowledged like, yeah, I'm pressuring to have done that. Um, but I'm thinking uh, the story about the Washington Bullets guy, the, the scrub that had 37 yeah, points. What, what was up with that? Because I, I bought it, but then at the very end he goes, it didn't even happen. Yeah, well, and this is the other thing too. The George Carl didn't say hi at the steakhouse. And I'm thinking, well, did any of these things happen? Or yeah. B.J. Armstrong, that did. That, that was on the court. That was on camera. But how many of these things were totally contrived only so he could be pissed off about something? I mean, that is literally, and I'm not trying to, you know, it sounds bad to call him something like this, and you said it, but that is a, a, a sociopathic tendency <laughs> to create a narrative that people are coming at. You know, it could be like me suddenly saying to you guys, like, oh, everybody's after me. This guy said this, this guy said that, and I'm making all of it up just so I can, like, go nuts on these people on social media or something. If that's what he had to do to get motivated to beat LeBradford Smith or whatever that guy's name was, then, then you know, good good for him. I mean, it's ridiculous that he went out the next night and, and scored as many points as he did in the game in the first half. And the fact that he had that ability to turn that on is just absurd. But at the same time, I, I was watching those moments sort of like, well, first of all, by the time we're in 97, 98 and guys are still doing this to him, it's like, do you not understand? Shut up. Don't say <laughs> these things to him. Because well, we're on like the 15th story and then Nick Anderson goes, you know, Nick Anderson says something and it's like, oh, Nick, just be quiet. <laughs> and by the way, Nick, Nick showed up pretty well in that documentary last night. He was a yeah. legitimately very good NBA player for a long time. And what's sad for him is that he will, he will be remembered, unfortunately, his NBA career for missing free throws at the end of an NBA Finals game that could have won, I think, game one against the Rockets yeah. in 95. I mean, he could have yeah. iced that game. It was um, it was their first game. The Magic were the one seed. The Rockets were the sixth seed coming off of their championship against the Knicks the year before, the, uh, the O.J. Simpson NBA Finals. But, yeah, in 95, Nick Anderson, I think the Magic were up by three, and he only had to make one free throw or something like that. And he – yeah, yeah, they were up by three. He missed the first two got his own rebound, got fouled again, and missed the next two. Oh, my God. Then the Rockets come down, hit a three, and Olajuwon wow. win, 
wins the game in overtime and the Magic end up getting swept. That Magic team was loaded, and I can give you the starting five. It was Penny Hardaway, Dennis Scott. It would have been Nick Anderson at the three, Horace Grant at the four, which Horace Grant was an all-star his last year with the, the Bulls. And it might have been yeah. with his first year with the Magic, too. And then a young Shaq. That's your starting five. Man. They were absolutely I, loaded. I, as a young Orlandonian, would have gotten four of those. So I'm mildly, I'm mildly uh, proud of myself. There you go. And then there's also, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the Knicks. I can name only a few starting fives. The Magic, I could do that. The Knicks back then, it would have been Starks. Um, Derek Harper was actually the starting point guard for a couple good Knicks teams. Uh, and he was like 13 years in his career. Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, and then some mix of like Anthony Mason. Um, and somebody else. But then the Rockets that won two championships, Sam Cassell, uh, Vernon Maxwell, Robert Ory, which Big he got a, Yes, and back then, absolute stud. He was small forward. I think Otis Thorpe was your power forward, and then Akeem Olajuwon, who was the most skilled center since. You know, that, that's a pretty short list. Didn't they have uh, the Rockets had, and I forget who... Kenny Kenny Smith was that his name? Kenny Smith the, was the, on the, it. Maybe he was the guard off the bench. I'm pretty sure that the starting guards were Vernon Maxwell, who was a veteran point guard, and then Sam Cassell. I'd have to check that, but they they were loaded, and it would have been interesting to see. And I agree with this premise that the Bulls were not going to win eight in a row. They weren't. They would have stumbled at some point. And as I was listening to a Bill Simmons podcast last week with Russillo, they rewatched that Bulls Magic series in 95, which got a little bit of play in this documentary. And I remember at the time, the conversation around the family dinner table was, well, you know, Michael came back late, so the Bulls weren't quite ready. And they used that narrative last night that Michael didn't have his legs under him. Okay, fine. But I feel like that cheapens how good the Magic were. And how the Bulls really were their weakest at any point um, since Phil Jackson had arrived. The roster just what Bill Wennington was your starting center. No offense to Bill, but that's not going to get oh, it done. Come on, I know. And then Tony <laughs> Tony Kukoc essentially is asked to play power forward, which you know that ain't going to defensive offensively great, but defensively that isn't going to work. So they were a very flawed roster then. That kudos to Kraus for making the moves he needed to. You trade Will Purdue. For Dennis Rodman, and I don't care what baggage comes with Dennis Rodman, that is a beautiful trade. I mean, that, that, talk about a return in investment right there. That's um, still yeah. blows my mind. That and when it happened, I remember thinking, "How the hell did we only have to trade Will Purdue for Dennis Rodman?" And well, that's what I was going to ask: was was it seen as a as a win at the time? Because again, I in hindsight, I don't know you know how good any of these guys were listening to Chicago sports radio. And I think Bernstein had Terry Bores on, or I was, no, I was listening to Danny Mack who would have been covering the bulls when that happened. And he said that he understood you were getting a far better player, but there was this huge concern that he was going to blow up the chemistry of the team. It didn't happen. I mean, Rodman worked very well on those three championship teams. Um, what I loved last night the 93-94 Bulls team, I had this affinity for because I've always been a Scottie Pippen guy. And my my family, we went about a month into that 93-94 season, TNT, Thursday night basketball, the Suns-Bulls rematch. No Jordan, but it was still Barkley, Kevin Johnson, Dan Marley, all those studs in the Suns. Amazing atmosphere at Chicago Stadium, and I wish I remembered more of it. That team was so damn close to making an NBA Finals. But they cover the Pippen sitting down during the Ku coach game winner. And that is the biggest blemish on Pippen, who to me is an enigma. I can't figure him out. 
nice enough guy. Not, not but, according to the documentary. I mean, the only three things they showed were him choosing to sit out because he wanted to not do his surgery over the summer. Right. Him choosing to do this little mistake with the 1.8. I mean, the documentary doesn't necessarily hold Scottie Pippen in the highest you know, light. And that was what was weird, Trevor, is they have all the interviews with Kerr and Horace. And I feel like another couple guys on that team. And Bill Cartwright, which Bill Cartwright, as I was reading about, was really sort of the the center, not just position wise, but in terms of like the I guess, uh, yeah. <laughs> he was like <laughs> he was like the moral center. He was the wise sage on all those Bulls teams up through 1994. And I don't remember that in real time, but as wa- watching that last night, you get the mix of about five minutes of Kerr, Cartwright, Horsing. Man, we love Scotty. He was such a great teammate that year. But that's almost unforgivable. And they forgave him, and they damn near won that series. But that is something, as Jordan had said, he's, he hasn't lived down, and he won't. That's always going to go with him, Harry. And I'm thinking that, man, for one of my favorite NBA players, why, why did I have such an affinity for him when he would pull some jackassery like that? It kind of reminds me. It's, a, it's very yeah, – the, the, the only guy the – guy, only guy I can kind of make a comparison to would be – Say like Cam Newton, okay. someone who, when he is on and he's lighting the world on fire, then yeah, he's one of the most electric players that there is. Maybe not uh, the same as far as being flamboyant, but when it's maybe not going his way, he kind of slumps down and just mm. co- like closes down into this shell. And yeah, that the one thing that bothered me the most wasn't him. Saying, I mean, obviously, I hated that he took himself out of the game, and you know, Phil comes up to him and says, "Are you going in?" He says, "No." He says, "F you then," and puts in whoever else, and they win it anyway. What bothered me was they're interviewing him for this documentary twenty something years later, and he says, "Would I do it again?" Probably. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you regret doing it, why would you do it again? You know what the theme I think is? I saw Dan Bernstein tweet this out, and I didn't think of it in real time, but it makes sense. The theme of this whole thing, essentially, is no apologies. You know, and Jordan's the biggest one of it. He's not apologizing for anything, as we saw at the end of Episode 7 last night. But these guys, you talk about ego, and the larger the ego, the harder it is for people to acknowledge mistakes and say yeah i do it again differently and that that struck me too harry that he began by saying yeah i screwed up i let my teammates down would i do it again yeah probably it's like whoa, whoa, what no this was your redemptive moment scotty this is what i was supposed to say oh man i love scotty because he acknowledges mistake and he's a flawed he did the guy same thing with the with the surgery too. keep in mind he said he wouldn't have done that over the summer if he had to do it again too i know and and jordan called out both and this is where there aren't really good guys bad guys in this isaiah thomas the closest thing to a bad guy and they pretty much painted him as a total ass but with scotty he has the pulpit here he can speak on it and he was right on the verge of being the most sympathetic guy in episodes that would have been episode seven last night by saying it haunts me to this day like imagine if he says that it haunts me to this day and he cries and he says i was so proud of what we did on that team and i let them down and we damn near got it done anyway but uh, there's not a and this is probably hyperbole but if he's like there's not a week that goes by that i don't think about that mistake and then today we're all talking about man what a human moment from sky even says like you know, if I had to do it over again, yeah, you know, okay, cool. I was like, what the well, hell? And also, what I think is interesting about the whole season in that that season was they were so successful without 
Michael, you know, the yeah. whole point of those episodes were Michael saying there is no way in hell we'd get to what we got to without me pushing these guys so hard. And then there's this little bridge in the middle of episode seven where Steve Kerr and all these guys suddenly go, man, it was nice to just have like, a supportive teammate. <laughs> right. And they almost got there anyway. They almost did. And they did not cover that this surprised me, but game five, I believe, of that Knicks Bulls series, there was an awful call by Hugh Hollins. And if you ask any Chicago Bulls fan or any Chicago sports fan that was living through it, you just mentioned Hugh Hollins, they will get pissed off. And my family was visiting uh, my grandparents up in Paxton watching that game on a Sunday afternoon and I get my sports vigor from my dad and I remember how ticked off he was and as a kid you know bad officiating calls would register sometimes they wouldn't other times but I remember him essentially saying you know the Bulls may have just lost this series because of a blown call and that's how I remember it they didn't they didn't approach it last night but that Bulls team was loaded with a all-star Horace Grant, the best Pippen year. You had B.J. Armstrong, I think averaging around 16, 17 points a game, so he came into his own. And uh, it's a shame for, I think, Phil Jackson more than any of them. And that was his best coaching job and proved that he, despite having Jordan and Kobe and Shaq and Pippen throughout his career, is, in my mind, the best coach in NBA history. And episode after episode, Phil Jackson comes consistently comes off as the most reasonable cool guy out of the bunch that's what yeah, really strikes sure. me I mean, it's almost like a, a like a, an office level joke of how calm he is no matter what the situation they're bringing up is right like anytime they cut to a you know a headshot of phil he's basically just saying like yeah well you know didn't bother me that's pretty much all he's saying about you know whether it's rodman or pippen or whoever doing whatever he never, ever has had a moment in this documentary where he was like, yeah, that was total BS. And then when he did talk about the Pippen sitting down during Coach's game winner, he tells the story matter-of-factly, and he, I think he was the one that said, yeah, and then I said, F you, Scotty. Or, That's true. He did He did get mad at that one, yeah. But, but I'm thinking that kind of demeanor that he has in the interview segments, which I'm guessing he had most of the time as coach of the Bulls, that, that kind of style... When he got pissed off, I remember watching games and thinking, oh, my God, Phil Jackson's ticked off. You don't see that very much. And how impactful it was when a guy who was so chill most of the time would finally rev it up and get super pissed off at his team. And Well, that's the opposite of the Underwood thing, right? Where it's like the debate of, and I'm not saying this is bad or good, but it's a debate of like, if you're going to light into Kipper Nichols all day, every day, at a certain point, just <laughs> Kipper just tune you out. You know what I mean? Though I got to say, it didn't seem like Underwood chilled out as the year went on. I'm sure winning does oh, yeah. that. Yeah. But he was so jovial during that Penn State game. Like, hey, guys, we got this. Hey, you're doing great. Keep it up. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is it just because it's on TV or is this basically Probably. how he always? Okay, so we get into episode eight and we get into his comeback. Is that correct that they would have started that in episode eight, his comeback? Was well, how did episode se- episode seven ended with him saying, you know, the whole if you want to win, come with me. If you don't, then get off. He's probably he's probably back sure. by that point. Then that might be my I mistake. Think, I don't think he was back by the end of episode seven. I think in, in like maybe 15, 20 minutes into episode eight is when he came back. Also, just a side note, and I'm sure I don't know if you guys how you felt about this, but I think feel like they really didn't make a big deal of him coming back like it was maybe a two-minute little blurb of i went out to play basketball with bj armstrong i kind of wanted to play 
I told my publicist to send out a fax saying I'm back, and then it came out him saying I'm back. Yeah. Everything else has had so much backing and so much reasoning that that really didn't seem in line with the rest of the documentary. There didn't really seem to be much um, of a reason behind it. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, and the thing is, having lived through that comeback, and I remember that far more than the initial retirement, that I don't know if there was any way that they could have done that segment that would have really brought home the impact of him coming back had on the entire, not the sports world. That was the biggest story because I remember more than the retirement, I remember where I was and what I was doing when I heard it. We were at my cousin's wedding in Iowa. I was eating a Big Mac from McDonald's, getting ready to be the candle lighter for the ceremony. Yeah. And and the rumors- Can you imagine Twitter? If oh, that was and ahead, even, even without tr- uh, Twitter, Trevor, which is hard to say that in a row, Twitter, Trevor, um, even without it, the rumor mill for whatever it was back then was just on fire for a week. And people were like, please God, let him come back. Let him come back that Saturday. I'm back that Sunday afternoon. He played a terrible game against the Pacers, but it was just this feeling of, Holy crap. Like he's, this actually happened, but you're right, Harry, you know, there's certain moments where you just won't get that. Um, you won't capture that. I'm sure. And I think it sort of felt that way. Cause I agree, Harry, it sort of felt that way to me in the sense that, it, it kind of felt like it was always the expectation that he would. You know what I mean? Like, it, it didn't feel like after five years of radio silence, he comes out of nowhere to come back. He'd been working out for a week or two at the facility. He said in his retirement press conference, I'm not going to close the door on coming back. Mm-hmm. Like, it sort of felt like, not that necessarily the media was waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it, it just sort of felt like MJ is back, uh, uh, and this is great, instead of like, holy crap, he's back. But maybe I'm not characterizing that correctly because again i wasn't around when that happened yeah, another cool thing last night is i think bj armstrong mentioned they're getting pancakes at baker square and when i had jordan burnfield on uh was it uh, two weeks ago so it would have been a week ago last thursday and jordan burnfield grew up in deerfield right by the birdo center like five minutes five minute drive away from it and he said that many times his family would go to baker square for breakfast and oh look over there there's bj armstrong and horace grant oh look over there there's pip and jordan literally having breakfast in this baker square so that was a cool little throwback there and how in that little community of deerfield which i've never been to but they were able to operate with some autonomy even though they were already at that point the biggest thing around but to me, it felt like the second three-peat, and again, I lived through it or remember it more, was when they became bigger than the Beatles, like that sort of thing. The first three-peat, certainly the popularity was there. There was the dream team, but there was something about the impact of him coming back. And I think for a lot of sports fans, it was, well, we can't take this for granted. However long he's here for this one, we are fully engaged and and on the second three-peat which they begin with the uh, Sonic series in 1996 and, uh, you know, wasn't a sweep. Uh, I got to give the director credit for the iPad method where he has the Gary Payton. And if I would have been guarding Jordan from the start of that series, it would have been different. And Jordan just breaks out in laughter. These iPad moments are getting some really cool, genuine reactions. And that uh, Isaiah Thomas was my favorite, probably Harry, but I love Jordan's basically dismissal of, oh, I, I like Gary, but no, I, I love that authentic sort of reaction. The, my favorite part of that little exchange when he was looking at the iPad was he was listening to Gary Payton, and I think Payton said something like, once I had started covering him, the series really changed. And then you see Jordan's <laughs> face kind of like, oh, yeah, it changed. Because obviously they still lost. So I thought that was interesting, the way that they got that done. 
Um, he sort of he sort of what? mocked. He's like uh, the glove. Like he sort of said his name like it's a cute pet name because he was Gary yeah. Payton. He was the glove. He was an amazing defensive player. He was a pest. I remember feeling like God, this guy is a total pest. But it even though the Sonics won those two games, it was one of those. Eh, it's getting back to Chicago. It doesn't matter. And not only did it not matter, but in Game Six it was a total blowout. I, I think the reason behind why maybe like you said. The Bulls re- reached that mythical plateau when they won the second three-peat. And just as just a side note, I told you guys, I don't see how you spend all this time on, say, like Tony Kukoc and the Dream Team. You spend like 15, 20 minutes on that, and then you spend two minutes on the entire 72-win season, the best season in the history of the association. was interesting, that's yeah. Just, that's just an aside. But I think what really put them on top with that second three-peat and I want to draw the, the comparison to say maybe over the last 20 years, the, um, the the New England Patriots in football is that you get the feeling that the first time around, this team is dominant. This team is beating everyone in their way, but then they kind of go away. But when they come back, you have the sense of, well, they were never really gone in the first place. Maybe in the, in the case of the Patriots, you know, you have Brady getting injured. You have a couple of seasons where they even get there, but then they get upset by, say, Eli Manning, and it's just a one-off kind of fluke. Yeah. And in similarly to the uh, to the Bulls, you have Jordan going away. He's not on the team. Then the Rockets come up, and they kind of claim that the uh, the two titles in '94 and '95. But as soon as the Bulls come back, just like as soon as the Patriots came back, you could see, okay, this iteration. We understand who the top dog in the league is right now. It's it's that them winning those second three kind of gave you the idea that they were never really gone in the first place. It was more so just no one knocked them off. They just kind of took themselves out of the picture for a little. Yeah, they were on hiatus, sabbatical. They were going to come yeah. back, and it, well, I, that's a power move, right? It, it sort of is, and I'm thinking too about how. Jordan leaves. He goes into baseball. I kind of remember that, but I I don't know if there was this underwriting sense that, you know what, he's coming back at some point. Because you guys mentioned how the documentary covers his return and did it really capture the true excitement. I do wonder if there was an underlying sort of thing, again, too young to remember it fully, that, I mean, come on, guys, he's coming back. And when he did, what I had forgotten about was how quickly he had moments in that little month before the playoffs started where the fourth game back, he gets the game winner in Atlanta where I think nine days after he came back, he gets the 55 point game in Madison score garden. I remember those two things very well, but um, the way that the episode ends episode eight, you're right, Harry, it kind of brushes over the 96 finals. We'll get, I guess, into the 97 finals next week in the flu game, of course, which I'm looking forward to that. Was it a hangover or was it the flu? We'll get the answer on that, maybe. And how it ends with the cliffhanger of the Pacers series in 98. And that kind of sent a chill up my spine because uh, Jeremy and I have talked about this. It was the only time during the Bulls' six championship runs that I felt they were vulnerable. And the way that ended last night, I'm like, I just sort of like at the end of Apollo 13, I'm like, are they going to make it? Is Tom Hanks and Bill Paxton and and, uh, Kevin Bacon going to make it? You know they are. But for whatever reason, the way it ended last night, I was like, oh, damn it. For the first time in a couple weeks, I was ready to watch the other two, the upcoming episodes right away. 
and I think I I think that's a tribute to how well they're framing these episodes, Trevor, and how they are they're finding those cliffhangers every Sunday to keep that hook in you. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because were they always? Do you, either of you know whether or not they were always going to do this in two episode pairings on TV, or was the original plan before COVID hit to just like dump it? I think it was 10 parts. I think they were going to string it along anyways in June after the NBA finals wrapped up. Okay. I was, I, I was, yeah. No, I, I was just curious because you're, to your point, they have done an excellent job of, of sort of being able to take you in at the beginning of the two episodes, but then take you back out with an effective cliffhanger at yeah. the end. Whereas, you know, maybe if you were just like binge watching it a month from now, it would almost seem less cohesive to have random cliffhangers at the end of episodes three, seven and nine or whatever. But but for for TV purposes, I think they're doing and at at first I'll admit it, it was somewhat confusing to me, the timeline jumping and all that. But to your point, I think you made it last week, Carp. At the same time, you know, I I wouldn't want to watch eight episodes about 1993 and then only get to the 97, 98 stuff at the end if you were going chronologically. Yeah, I think I I, I think I've really adjusted to the way they're doing it. and I I like it. now. agree with the adjustment part. It is less jarring. And that's been each week. It's gotten less jarring, even though I didn't mind it all that much to begin with. But I understood criticisms of it or just the general criticism. Like, okay, are we back in 1984 now? Oh, my God. Are we going back to 1998? So, I totally understood those uh, criticisms of it, but as I'm watching this and thinking of the scope of it, when we're told before it even airs that there's a 10-part Michael Jordan documentary, which is not all that short of 10 hours, I think it's about eight and a half total, the scope of it, and yet they're managing to keep it both expertly crafted and entertaining all the while. I've not been bored. There's not been one moment where I've been like, Ugh, okay, I know where this, this part- This has got to be the shortest 10 hours I've ever- consumed yeah so ken burns can rightly raise concerns about bias and well only jordan proved this and like i mentioned before i did have a sense last night harry that we were getting a bit into hero worship more than previous episodes and yet what what do i demand perfection because in terms of filmmaking and entertainment value i can't ask for much more than what i'm getting from this well yeah, I mean, there have been moments, for me at least, where maybe they get off on little tangents having to talk about, like I said before, Tony Kukoc, or stuff that maybe I just don't see as essential. Because now that we're, you know, eight or nine episodes into the um, into the documentary, you look back, well, well, we're eight episodes into the documentary, yeah. and you look back at the previous eight, and you kind of have to ask yourself, okay, is all of this essential to where we are right now? And for the most part, I think it is. But then at the same time, there is stuff that I know you always like to have backstory, like to know more about Pippin, like to know as much as you need to know about Rodman or, um, or Phil or, or Kukoc. But as it goes further and further along, it kind of gets to the point where you do seem like at the beginning, we all thought Jordan documentary. Then it kind of goes a couple episodes and you think, this is more of a Bulls documentary. Now we're coming back around to the pa- the fact that it, it really is just a Michael Jordan documentary. I mean, these last two episodes alone were pretty much just about him, unless you want to call one of them the B.J. Armstrong episode, which I don't think that would be fair. But it's really, 
it's turned it's turned more so back into what I think everyone was hoping it was going to be from the from the start. BJ is such an interesting guy because he played at Iowa, and I remember my parents saying, "God, when he was at Iowa, everybody hated BJ Armstrong." Then the Bulls draft him. He's he's a good NBA player, not great, but really good. And he's this weird mix of like uber polished. He's a, he's a super agent, I think now for some NBA basketball players. Super polished guy, and yet a little bit street. And I think he's from Detroit. I think he's from the Detroit area, but I'd have to go back and look at it. But when well, he, there you go. yeah, and when he gets the game winner against Jordan, he just he's a very interesting guy. And I would read a well, I don't know about a book, but maybe a long form article. I don't know about or like a short thirty for thirty about B.J. Armstrong about his sort of path from a kinda, twenty for twenty. A twenty for twenty would be great. A streetball kid who turns out to be this ridiculously polished guy. I I enjoyed the segments with him, and never could have assumed or predicted before this thing started that B.J. Armstrong would actually be, other than Pip and maybe Steve Kerr. I feel like B.J.'s gotten as much interview time as Rodman. I'm also getting the sense that Rodman didn't give them a lot of good stuff anyway, because he's been sort of absent since his episode in ep- uh, episode three. Because I feel like when he, whenever he does show up, he's doing his Dennis Rodman talking very fast, trying to make a quip, um, moving his hands around, gesturing wildly. He's, um, I, I did not figure that B.J. Armstrong would be such a, a role player in this. As we wrap up this uh, Jordan thing, we got next week to look forward to. Uh, there's a couple more Can things. Can get into the hero worship thing again? Yeah, yeah let's, let's end with that. Uh, and I want to say Go something ahead, after you, Trevor. Well, I'll say it after you um, on the on the whole Dennis Rodman and B.J. Armstrong thing. I just, for someone, again, who's completely viewing this in hindsight and has had no real-time experience with any of this, and as a, I don't know if I'm a natural cynic, but it is my tendency to go, okay, did that really happen exactly? You know, you know what I mean? And this is a Jordan-led thing. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I just look at it and I go, like, in the Nuggets series, you have George Carl saying that, and then Jordan, and I think a few other teammates said, and that was all he needed. Well, they lost two more games in that series. <laughs> yeah. and, then, right. and then Jordan says, I had other things on my mind. And so I'm like, well, wait a minute. You just said that, you know what I mean? And then sometimes it would be like, well, he had the ability to turn that on and never turn it off. And that was when the series was 2-0, and then it was 2-2, and they win. Yeah. And I'm like, well, then why didn't he turn it on then? You, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think Trevor, when it hit me last night, was when BJ and back to the BJ Armstrong thing. He has the really good game, and I think they tied the series up at one apiece. And there's a must win game three. And I'm thinking, you know, BJ Armstrong could have said, "Your mom sucks," and um, I'm glad your dad's dead. He could have said whatever, right? But ultimately, <laughs> Jesus, but, that's intense. But here's the point: it wouldn't have mattered or shouldn't have because you were the Bulls and the Hornets just came to your place in one game two. That's fuel enough. So I I, I just, it's like the idea that he's the greatest ever, but then halfway through a series, he required something to happen. I I do. I feel like they were laying the slights perceived and real slights. I feel like they laid that on a little thick last night and you're right. There, there would be almost these rapid cuts between old teammates like, yep, and that's all he needed. It's like, well, no, all he really needed was the fact he was the best player in the world and that the series was tied when it shouldn't have been tied or that the Sonics ended up winning two games and he went back home for game six anyways and it didn't matter. So agreed. And 
<laughs> well, like the Nick Anderson one, right? Nick Anderson mentioned something yeah. about was it the Perfect jersey example. number or what yeah, was it? Yeah, he said he said forty five didn't look like twenty three out there. So then Jordan goes out with twenty three and has a great game, but then they lose two more games after and that. And they still so lose. Like, well, then what yeah. happened? To, what happened yeah. to Jersey twenty three? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they yeah. lost the series. Yeah. The, the whole slight thing, I think, has been getting played over and over, and everyone wants to say, all he needed was an excuse to go out there and bop a doop Well, no, it's because he's the best player in the world, and yeah, I'm sure he does use that as a little bit of fuel, but a lot of times, like you said, they'd say he'd go out there and have this great game, and oh, you you don't want to get him mad. Well, then, why do you win the series 4-2? You it- know, why is this not... like if, it's one thing to say that, and then they win the rest of the game. Yeah. If they don't then just go on and dominate. Just don't say it. You know, it's it's like no one's even expecting you to say something like that anyway. I get the feeling that <laughs> this is an SNL skit waiting to be written. Where if they could actually do a mockumentary of this sort of thing, it would be the '98 Finals and Greg Ostertag said something about, hey, Michael, I like your armband. And then Michael's like, and that's all I needed to really get pissed off and beat Greg well, Ostertag is, in the jazz. My, my point is just like, I would almost, not everything lines up into a story, right? I would almost more so appreciate if they just said, like, I'm not, I'm not blaming Michael for losing those games. I'm criticizing the idea that he had this ability to like mythologically turn it on and then never turn it off. Well, then why did he lose any games? Mm-hmm. I would rather they just say, look, you could be the greatest player ever and still lose two games in a series to the Magic instead of saying, well, this thing happened at this point of demarcation and from that point on he was unbeatable. Harry? Yeah. Anything more uh, with that? Or you you also mentioned there was a B.J. Armstrong, Dennis Robin kind of thing. Well, the, the thing for the B.J. Armstrong <clears throat> um, thing was but this, this last episode, I'm pretty sure, was the first time that they really had him on screen for a lot of time. But it did seem like – because you had Rodman on for the Rodman episode. And you had Rodman on maybe for a clip here or there yesterday. I remember I was driving home after work because I've been I've been at, a, at the ESPN like, – like I've been at work for each one of these viewings it, uh, for Sunday night that Sunday night shift from five until one in the morning or whatever, whatever the hell it is. And I'll get to spend two hours watching this on ESPN. And I remember after the Rodman episode, I was driving home and they were playing something from, a, I think it was a podcast with Jason. I think it's he, her or he, her. Yeah. The director, his name, the director. And he said that you can't really tell, and this is a credit to him that he was able to make it. So you weren't able to tell this, but it was, damn near impossible to get a decent interview out of Dennis Rodman. Mm-hmm. He said it was harder to get a, a hold of him than it was to get a hold of Barack Obama, which he did, so he would know. Um, he said that every two minutes all Rodman would want to talk about is North Korea. That, <laughs> that, all, that, that he wanted to, uh, that Rodman showed up to the screening like 30 minutes or no, like three hours late and that when he got there, he said, so what's this for? And they're saying, it's for the, it's for the Michael Jordan documentary. We've, we've been over this. Oh, and my God. That basically, it's kind of like, you know, the metaphor of monkeys typing on a typewriter for years and years and years, and eventually they'll type out of Shakespearean. Play. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. The, the blurst of times. times. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's basically it kind of sounds like it's like that. It's like they sat Rodman down in this chair 
and he talked into also he was a diva he wanted them to get him like a sandwich from quiznos probably some drinks like <laughs> yeah and that, it sounds like he just talked and talked and talked and talked and they had this, the uh, the video t- the the camcorder going and that he'd just be sitting the uh, director just be sitting there and say Oh wait, he just talked about the Bulls for thirty seconds. We better grab that. Yeah, I think so that, that that's just a little that's just a little fun factoid that I wanted to toss in. Bill, Bill, I, had, I had heard on uh, on the radio. Bill Simmons and Ryan Rosillo got in a bit of hot water two weeks ago when on Bill's podcast they talked about Rodman and Rosillo said at first that I just don't find him that I don't find the shtick that interesting. And Bill Simmons went on that. And as they were talking about it, I said, I get it. You know, like I was looking forward to the Rodman episode, but if I had to be honest, that's the weakest of the bunch, even though it has this entertaining moments. It just didn't resonate quite as much because I think that there is a shelf life to the Rodman persona or mystique when all of a sudden you see him now as a guy in his mid 50s who's just a drunkard. And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. Do what you want to do. but And second in command to North Korea, don't forget. <laughs> right. Yes. So you, you hear about that, and it's not about whether Dennis is a good guy or a bad guy. I've always had a tendency to sort of mythologize rock star antics and think, wow, you know, idealizing behavior that normal people couldn't pull off. But eventually the party's over. You know, and when you are starring in a documentary of the greatest basketball player of all time and you're still doing this diva crap as a 55 year old guy wearing sweatpants and a T-shirt that don't match. And it's just I get it. I get why Bill Simmons and Ryan Russillo said that even as someone who is a fan of Dennis Rodman, the player. And I appreciate his unique personality. What the hell? He can live however he wants to. But that's interesting, Harry, and does not surprise me in the least that the director had the biggest challenge getting good stuff from him yeah and i'm just kind of going back and saying which one i don't know you guys know and i won't i say this probably every week having to do with my memory and my brain but i don't really i can't really differentiate between a lot of the episodes um they kind of a lot of them i know that there is a rodman episode and a pippin episode but if you ask me to go back and say uh this moment with the dream team i couldn't tell you if that was episode four five or six a lot of it just kind of meshes together at this point. But I would say the Rodman one was kind of a weak storyline um, just because and, – and, and the best reason why is because how much have they really touched on that since then? It doesn't the, – the, they kind of make it seem like in that episode, yeah, Rodman Dennis was a huge integral part to the success of that 98 uh, – 97-98 team. And then in every episode since then, it's been – well, without Jordan, we sucked. Well, Pippen was really the catalyst for this team. Yeah. I th- those are good points there. So we got two more to go, and I am excited to see this wrap up. I, I feel as if a lot of times the penultimate episodes or the penultimate installment is usually better than the finale. It seems like a lot of TV shows follow that format, and same thing with you know movie series, trilogies, whatever. So I, I feel as if we may have seen the best one-two punch. Um, I know that a lot of people that had advanced copies continue to say that seven and eight were the peak of this, but then also nine and 10 weren't ready to go out for distribution uh, when they sent these all out so to critics. Anyway. Uh, Rise of Skywalker edition of nine and 10. <laughs> hey, I like Rise of Skywalker. I'm just in it for the so interview. Uh, okay, so uh, before we let you guys go, I do need to have a couple things. I've been kind of engaged in a conversation with Bob Osmussen on Twitter, and as I said in the opening segment here, you know, I appreciate the fact that he reached out. And when I do criticize a, a journalist or another media personality, it's not 
them personally so much as something they say that I might take issue with. So to give you guys quick context, yesterday there was an article that Bob had published in the News Gazette saying, hey, Brandon Peters winning the Heisman in 2020. Why not? And he... Why not? (laughs) Now, my biggest issue with this, and I think that uh, as this conversation goes on, I may need to be a little bit more deliberate in how I address this with Bob. But my biggest issue with this is someone that's grown up in the community and seen the News Gazette sports section through many iterations, is that right now it feels to me, Trevor, as if it is an active effort to sell something that is not there, that is not real. And that is essentially operating now as a functioning uh, marketing arm of the DIA, which is somewhat speculative on my part. But when I read something like that yesterday, Trevor, how the hell can I think differently? Well, for one thing, you know, they did file for bankruptcy and are now owned by a non-local conglomerate, correct, in terms of the entire paper? That's correct. Okay. So, I mean, I mean not that that is a specific, uh, you know influence on the sports section necessarily but to a certain degree again it's all speculative on our part but there may not be that guy over there right now saying you know well maybe you want to take a look at this article or something because there really isn't anybody over there in in, in a managerial role locally you know because they're not owned locally anymore but to to your point i just kind of i mean whatever you can have your opinion but I, I mean, are we that deep into quarantine that we're writing articles about will Brandon Peters win the Heisman this year? I mean, really, are we, are we that deep into quarantine? Well, and, Only nine weeks in, boys. And That's to, like a week 56. To that point, Trevor, and I, I acknowledge that too. It's not easy to talk. I mean, we got the Jordan thing as sort of a launching pad, but it's yeah, not but easy. I'm not going on the air today and talking about uh, is Harry Black going to win the Offensive Lineman of the Year award? It's not that far of a stretch. The only thing holding me back is the fact that I don't play. I'm just joshing here. <laughs> you know, but to your point, Trevor, I that was one of my first thoughts yesterday. Because here's what I here's what I don't want to be. And there's been a few people that have unfollowed me on Twitter that we used to have on 93.5. Dave Wisnowski, I think, has unfollowed or blocked me because I can't find him anymore on Twitter. <laughs> and because I. I distinctly remember it was after the Michigan State game. I called them out for what I perceived to be an absolutely asinine tweet about, well, you guys need to apologize for Lovey Smith, which I still think is an asinine tweet. But I would have the conversation with him <clears throat> personally. He interpreted it as such the way I worded it as a personal thing. To Bob's credit, you know, the conversation we're having right now is cordial and civil. And, uh, but at the same time, there's part of me that's like, well, wait a second. Why is there? I I also don't want to get in a debate about the merits of a Brandon Peters Heisman argument, regardless of you know why not? To which to me seems like a, a very flimsy premise for any argument. Why not? I mean, I could say. Well, yeah, I mean, why not? Is that's what Alan Griffin's hashtag was, right? When he transferred hashtag why not? Right, that, right. I had to laugh because it's like, why not? I mean, it's the most answerable question <laughs> in the world, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the counter is just why. So if we right. made here's the thing, if we made a T chart as we often do with our sixth graders, and on the left column it's why Brandon Peters won't win the Heisman, or let's keep let's no do not do double double negatives here. If there is a why Brandon Peters will win the Heisman, and a why not Brandon Peters will win the Heisman, what list do you think will be longer? And this is where and and a comment that I had made to Bob too about how an article he wrote after the Red Box Bowl about the 2020 version of the Illini team, 
can compete for a Big Ten West title. And it's like, well, okay, again, why not? I guess if every single thing goes right and Lovey Smith wakes up on the right side of the bed and is actually a good college football coach, sure. But it just seems to me that it's not even based in reality. And I just find it very frustrating to have to, almost in the same way that a David Thiessen argument would be made, I why would I why am I racking my brain trying to think of logical points to counter a, a an article that isn't based in logic to begin with? That's where my frustration right. I mean, kind of snowballs. Lost in the, you're getting lost in the micro, you know, bits of the argument, but then when you sort of pull out and look at it in a macro sense, you're also like, well, why the hell am I arguing against Brandon Peters winning the Heisman? This shouldn't even be a discussion. Yeah, I mean, for me, with the whole idea of saying why not. At least for me, and this might be defending, uh, what's his name, Osmussen as Musen. I don't know. I don't keep up with the local media in Champaign. But for me... You're missing out, Harry. Oh, yeah, I'm sure I am. We got the radio wars. We got the... uh, No, we don't. (laughs) Radio wars. Radio wars. I need a crazy Ed Bond tweet to get me through (laughs) nine of Oh, God, don't get me started. Ed Bond. Holy moly. He's the engineer at DWS. Who has okay. uh, some? Uh, well, he's an opinionated chap. That's great. For me, the idea of him saying "why not" kind of, at least for me, sounds like him saying, "I don't care if you disagree with me or not. I'm just trying to make content." At least for my point of view, that's what it sounds like he's saying. Why not? Illinois is going to go 15 and 0. Why the hell not? But to me, and I get it, and that, again, I do pivot to that sometimes in a in an era in which we can't watch live sports and we don't even know if the 2020 college football season will be played in 2020, right? It it probably won't at this rate. So that's another, that's another thing in the why not column. Why not? Well, there won't be games played probably, but even with the speculative nature of that article and the fact that on this very podcast, I speculate about a bunch of stuff just because, well, why not? I guess not to use that argument. I'm thinking that uh, what really, it's frustrating. I think back to 93.5, and you guys probably came in on the other side of this, but twice we had bid for Illini Sports, but I do remember. I was, we were there for the there, second one. For the I second one. For the second one. Yeah, for that speculation that, oh, yep, it sounds like we're going to get it. Oh, we're going to. And then it's like, of course we're not going to get it. Well, Why would they ever come to us? Well, and I, but then <laughs> to that point, Harry, to that point, great though. Great sell, great sell. <laughs> No, but the other side of it was I was thinking, well, why would they stay with DWS? And the reason I thought that is that for all the clout that they've had over the years, being the flagship station and being an institution here in Champaign-Urbana and really just central Illinois, okay, I get that to an extent, but uh, there was also the argument, well, they got a paper too. And at the newspaper, you know, if if Illinois doesn't stick with DWS, then, ooh, man, they're going to be writing a bunch of stories critical of the University of Illinois, and I'm thinking, is that a legit concern? Because I don't know how much juice they actually have over there to influence the public's opinions about the university or the DIA. I don't know why anyone cares about that. It's uh, Overall, and I understand PR is a job, and I understand it has to happen, but in an ideal world, and I know we don't live in one, I just don't understand why anyone would be concerned. If you do something bad, you're going to get beat up for it. If you do something good, you're going to get praised for it. I literally think it's that simple. I don't understand why there's a fear that if you go 2-10, and 10, someone might say something bad about you. Well, it's because you went 2-10. and 10. 
Like I, that, it's as simple as that to me. I, I just don't get it. But to me, Trevor, to that point, you're right. In a perfect, a perfect world, that should be what happens. An ideal world where if something goes bad or if something's not getting done for any of those sports teams over there, that the sports department will hold them to task. And to this day, the one person actually doing that is Lauren Tate. Yep. He's still the most vital person that they have in that sports department. So I, as I watch the, well, what is the opposite of evolution? De-evolution? Is that such a word? I don't even de- know. I think it's de Devolution. Devolution? Or maybe a, a, devolution? There's no okay. way in hell it's I'm devolution. looking it up. Devolution. <laughs> I, I think stagnation. Devolution. Okay, okay. I think stagnation may be the better word for it, though, because, you know, Trevor, yeah, there are certain things that I just feel like, and maybe this is me just spitting fire when there doesn't need to be any fire spat. But I'm thinking of how what is going on over there with the football program. My concern isn't the zero point zero 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 one percent chance that Brandon Peters might get a Heisman vote, let alone win it. My concern is the fact that we have a floundering football program that despite finally making a bowl game for the first time in five years and maybe making one this year with the schedule and the guys coming back is facing a 20 a, a next decade, if they aren't careful with it, of just a dearth of success because they can't get guys interested in even coming here. And, and to me, the, the story is not the speculative nature of this. Maybe Bob has written an article about the lack of recruiting momentum. I'm not sure. I don't read it regularly, so it may be unfair for me to cherry pick articles to criticize. But that's the story. So there are stories to be had other than speculative, well, maybe Brandon Peters wins the Heisman or not, when we have a $3.5 million head coach chilling in Arizona with only two guys so far to the 2021 class and the 85th ranked recruiting class in the nation. 14th out of 14 Big Ten. Two things. One, devolution or de-evolution or backward evolution. So that's that's what the term is. Okay. Uh, Not sure which one of those is correct because the Wikipedia page has all three of them. The other thing in response to uh, what you were talking about is kind of um, just, Trevor, what you were saying is that isn't the, uh, like, DWS slash News Gazette, I'm sorry if I got all this stuff mixed up, but you got it. aren't both of these, like you said, like, owned in some capacity by the university? They, they, that's the case? they have a deal with him. They have a deal, they to, have a deal with them, so to play. they're not going to talk negatively about them. To play the games on DW, to play the radio feed on DWS as a sports affiliate. And then also in return as part of that, they will get free advertisements in the news Gazette. That's part of the whole deal that I they help I promote just, Illinois sports. I guess I, I understand why there needs to be a partnership there. And I understand why I, I do. I get it. I get the politics of not wanting to go on air and blast lovey Smith for two hours. And then that same person goes over and does the lovey Smith show from six to seven. Like I understand why that would be a problem, but it, like, I, again, it, it's sort of an idealistic idea, I guess, but, you know, if Tim Beckman does something wrong, then just call him out for doing something wrong. Like, I, I, I don't understand why there is a sense or a fear of protecting what's happening no matter what is happening. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And that, that to me is the bigger concern because what Stephen Bardo said, this is probably six, seven years ago. And I think it was on the TNJ show. He said that Illinois is risking turning into the University of East Central Illinois in the way that they market their sports. And I agreed with it at the time. And there was a sense I've had most of my life that the way the athletic department operates is as some sort of insulated 
uh, thing that feels small townish, which is better necessarily than becoming too big for your britches and alienating the fan base, which in a way Mike Thomas did. So, you know, that was the sort of antithesis of University of East Central Illinois. Mike Thomas tries to make it more of a, you know, Chicago thing, but he just doesn't have the personality to do that. I think Whitman could. Uh, and, well, and to Whitman's credit, it feels a little bit less small townish when you hire Lovey Smith and you poach a Power Five coach and it, stuff like it that. Does, and I was just thinking about that, Trevor. It does. But then we've seen it in action in the last four years. And the people that are essentially, you know, op- running the show. And, you know, Lovey Smith was always going to be quiet and not really be available to the media. I, we knew that going in. But when you look at maybe even the tiffs that assistant coaches are getting into with people on Twitter, when you look at the what I what I perceive is just a general lack of excitement from the fan base, which could be somewhat countered if the coaching staff got out there and interacted. Winning cures everything, right? But part of a coach's job is not just to sell things to the recruits, which they aren't doing in the first place, but also selling it to the fan base. And that also goes down to the DIA mandating, hey, listen, you know, football coaching staff or Lovey Smith, part of your deal is you've got to help us sell this thing. And it, it just seems to me like, and certainly we're in the middle of a quarantine, that doesn't help, that this whole thing from the outset has been lethargic. You know, Lovey made the rounds when he first came here, shook hands with students, got the photo ops. Everyone thought that was cool, former Bears coach. And yet we sit here four years later and what genuine excitement, uh, and certainly the losses are the biggest part of that, did we ever get from that program? It's felt like a small program from the outset, apart from a little, some early recruiting momentum that got us excited. And we're seeing the benefits of that now with some of the seniors on this team, but that's about it. And Harry, wait, 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 wait. Did you say like what excitement from the football program? Yes. I'm excited more so than I've been in the last four years for the football program based on that, what we've seen from the last four years. Well, or, uh, in, that's in a low bar. Uh, I, I hear you. About- I, I, I don't care where the bar is. I mean, I, what I'm saying is that with the whole recruiting thing, that's something that we've known is going to be, you know, maybe we, what we, we did. We wanted more success for that in the offseason right now going forward. I understand that. But as far as this upcoming season, you guys know me. That's all I ever focus on. I don't care about recruiting. I focus more so on you're going to get guys in, and then it's up to the coaches to coach them up how they see fit and how they can do it. That's why they're getting paid the big bucks to see if they're able to coach these guys up to go out and compete. Well, they have the guys that they want out there right now. They have a bunch of old guys. This should be the team, and based on what we saw at the end of last season, minus the uh, the bowl game and the Northwestern game, I still look back at that month's stretch right there, seeing how good the team could be, and I don't have any reason to think that we, like, back at, in the middle of that stretch, and maybe towards the end of that stretch at the end of the uh, Michigan State game, we're saying no reason this team shouldn't have a ceiling of an eight-win season this upcoming season. We said that. We all said that. We were all agreeing with that, and I don't see what's changed in the in the last couple months, aside, like, in regards to this upcoming season to really dissuade me from that belief. Because, and I'll tell you why, Harry, and that's a good point. The 2020 season, just like Lon and I discussed on Thursday, yeah, they they should make a bowl game if everything goes right. And you make two consecutive bowl games at Illinois, you take that any day of the week, and then you hope that that parlays itself into future success for recruiting, which like you, with football recruiting, to me, it's like I check in once a month. How many do we got? Oh, cool. We got five or six guys now, and we got a couple. Th- okay. That's the extent of my football recruiting expertise, which is basically nothing, right? I check in every now and then. 
But when you mentioned uh, last year, which certainly that month was incredible, that's a month that you should have been able to sell. That is a four-game stretch and an incredible rise that they had in that month-long period where you should have been able to parlay that into some success. Meanwhile, Northwestern— You had a bye week, by the way. You had a bye week after the Michigan State game. Yeah. And in comparison, you have Northwestern already with two four-star kids in this class after they had their worst year of the Pat Fitzgerald era. And I'm thinking, okay, I know he's more established. He's been there longer. Okay, fine. But— the fact that we weren't able to parlay that, Harry, into excitement, both recruiting and really the general fan base, because I, I know you take COVID-19 out of it. I had speculation that you were not going to see an uptick in season ticket sales, at least not that measurable of one, the way last season ended. Because the concern, I think for a lot of people, myself included, is that four-game stretch, as fun as it was, and as, as remarkable as it was in a lot of ways, was the aberration. That that was a that was a five and seven team, maybe four and eight. They got it done in the Wisconsin and Michigan State games, and it, as we look at it, we continue to see dysfunction in terms of coaching. We continue to see a defense that, if they aren't getting the turnovers, is suspect at best. And I I don't see that translate. First, I don't see that translating to this this season, to be honest with you, let alone long term. So that's why you compile all those things together. I'm thinking, okay, well, if if this is the peak. I mean, you're telling me, along with other people, understandably, 2020 is the year. Okay. That's what we were all saying last year is that 2020 should be the year. And maybe I'm simplistic in that I think that I saw improvement in any kind of regards last season. So that gives me reason to believe that there's going to be, you know, a better season this year. And I understand the idea that with that success, you should have been able to go out and sell that and been able to get better recruits. But you didn't. That's, that sucks for long-term. I don't care about long-term right now. I want to see what they're going to do this upcoming season. That's always been my mindset. And that if you're able to keep seasons going, then maybe that'll sell it. Maybe the more success you have in successive years, maybe you'll just naturally get better players. I mean, you should be able to get people in a, uh, what was it, go out and sell that four-game stretch. At the same time, if you're saying that's the aberration, maybe guys out there are saying, yeah, four games. Who gives a you-know-what? It's not going to change what Illinois is going to do long-term. That's why I see what's coming up this upcoming season more important than any kind of recruiting stuff going on right now. Well, you know, to play the why-not card, but with some legitimacy, if they go out and they go eight and four this year, you would hope you would hope that would be what finally gets the recruiting thing going. I just feel like part of the deal with hiring Lovey was, okay, he's not been a college head coach. So we are banking on the fact that that cachet that he has will lead to really good recruiting classes. Never in a million years when that started to come out, the Saturday that Lon and I were in the studio talking about this after um, Cubit was fired, never in a million years could I predict that going into his fifth season, Lovey would be the worst recruiter in the Big Ten. Period. And and that, to me, Harry, is still something that I'm, I'm having a hard time uh, getting with. Trevor, you did you have something to add there? Yeah, I mean, I over. I don't know. Aberration may, might be too strong a word in terms of. I don't think everything they did in that stretch was like you're never going to see it again. That's true. But in the sense that, you know, I, I brought this up. What was it? It was either last week or two weeks ago when we were talking about it. If if you look at the stats, they were I think first in the country in luck. However, they measure that rating. They were first in the country in turnover margin. They were first in the country in turnovers forced. You know, a, a lot of things that that. Um, you know, things that aren't necessarily repeatable. And so I, I don't know, 
again, I, I don't want to mischaracterize it as last year was a total fluke, but I would characterize it as something needs to physically improve on the field. They can't just rely on that happening again, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And to me, as a Bears fan, I've seen the story too often where remarkable defense with a lot of takeaways, they don't get the takeaways the following year, and they become somewhat pedestrian. And this team cannot afford a pedestrian defense. I don't think the offense, for as excited as people are about it, unproven commodities at running back, you can't bank on Mike Epstein just coming in and being a 1,200-yard rusher, even though he is talented when he's out on the field. Wide receiver, you feel great about Josh, and maybe Ricky Smalling comes back, maybe Trevon Sidney, and you got two really good tight ends. You got guys, I get that, but you don't have a level of talent where I could say to you, hey, even if the coaching is somewhat not up to snuff, they'll find their way to seven wins. I feel like the margin of error is just as thin as it was last year, and that's a scary Sure. Thing. I mean, the schedule is pretty easy, at least the front end of it. I, I would argue the the front end is as easy a schedule as you're going to get, and the back end is as hard a schedule as you're going to get, because yeah. you finish with versus Ohio State, at Indiana, at Northwestern. You haven't beaten Northwestern since Lovey was here. You look at Indiana and you maybe think like, well, that's a winnable game. I don't know, at Indiana. And then versus Ohio State, I, I don't see how you don't go at least at best one, one and two, two in your last three. And then the stretch before that, I think, is like Wisconsin and Iowa. So, no, I mean, in the last no. five, you're going, I don't – I mean, they could be an eight and four team, and I don't think they go better than like one and four in that stretch. Right. And so the front end is where you really have to make hay in terms of – and again, this is also speculative – speculative now because you don't even know if UConn's going to have enough money to field a football program this year. And then does that count as a win or is that just nothing? Well, that's that's just here. That's just a forfeiture or not a forfeiture. I'm pretty sure that you just finished college football doesn't really care. They'll have you finish five and six instead of saying six and six with a, with a uh, game that's resigned. I mean, they cancel games all the time because of weather and whatnot. True. Okay. If you can't get Illinois state or UConn here and you have to schedule somebody else those weekends and you lose, or you don't schedule anybody suddenly three of your gimme wins are gone. Mm -hmm. And now again, that's like a super pessimistic. What if scenario, but I'm just saying, I I think you got three easy non-conference than at Rutgers. I don't, and I hate saying this because you know what happened last year, mm-hmm. but I don't see how you can't start 4-0. Well, see, and I think the only difference is last year we were looking at it saying you have to start 3-0. and And the, the mindset was Akron was terrible, but they had beaten uh, Northwestern. So who knows? Uh, UConn's terrible. You should destroy them. Eastern Michigan. I remember, uh, Trevor, you and I were on one of our uh, – <laughs> The unnamed shows talking about how <laughs> Eastern Michigan, you know, that was a great something. show for five days. <laughs> it, re- it really was. But you remember, Forethought, we were saying planning, all that good stuff. Yeah, but you remember we were saying something to the effect of, uh, of this is a team that went out and they beat Rutgers, they beat Purdue. Who knows what they can do? Um, right. I don't think anyone's really having that mindset with the teams that we're playing this year because Illinois State is like similar to Akron, right? As far as where they were in the MAC. Uh, maybe not as as bad as Akron. I mean, they're actually the... pretty good in the FCS, but yeah. Oh, well, they're in the FCS. Well, then even more so a reason that you got to go out and just destroy them. Um, then UConn, we saw what UConn was. And then Bowling Green, I think, is one of the worst teams in the MAC. And then Rutgers right. is the worst team in all I Power would, Five. I'd put Rutgers as that Eastern Michigan game, though. Not as a direct comp, but they have Greg Schiano back. That's they actually a have a decent recruiting class. And they were they looking can't. good in the first half against Illinois, which might yeah, have been Illinois looking bad. So. Than 
two wins last year, right? I mean, they could be equally as bad, but there's no way. What's his name? Uh, oh, what's that guy's name? No, the quarterback. Oh, the quarterback. What was just, his name? Oh, yeah. He literally had like the worst statistical year of all time. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. To Zikowski? Yes. Art, Art Zikowski? I think he so. Had, like, a, he had like a QBR of two or something last year. He had two games in a row where he threw for one and then nine yards. <laughs> then yeah, he had no, a bunch. That's, that's, that's he, real. He had a bunch in the first half against Illinois. Guys, I, I'm taking nothing for granted. I've seen it too much of Illinois football. I haven't seen enough from Lovey to suggest that they've turned a corner. So you can say 4-0 start. They no, should. I mean, that's fair. You, you, you've, got, you've got reasonably uh, pessimistic speculation. I, just, I, the, I guess the only counterpoint to your argument is it's still speculation. Of course, I, I under, it I all is at this point. Um, we, we could do this, uh, you know, hell, again, we don't even know if there's going to be, I hate that it's all punctuated with, we don't even know if there's going to be a season. I say all this, I want there to be a season, I want there to be games, and ultimately, for the sake of not having to go through another coaching thing, Harry, what I want them to do is to go 7-5 to five or 8-4, and four, and then finally figure out how to recruit four-year players, because the transfer thing is only feasible for so long, and if they do that, great, I will... I'm on board. I will totally get back on the train, but I think it's just all that uncertainty that leads me to be like, oh my God, what are we doing? And yeah, and I mean, I probably just, that's, at the end of the day, it might just be more so your experience with having viewed what this team has done over the years and my mindset of just, I'm going based on what I've seen. You know, when I see us play well, I think there's no reason we can't play well uh, or continue to maybe build off of what we had. When I have, when we have a season the year before where we're two and ten, and then I, I, I forget when the two and ten season was, but when two and it was ten two and ten, season, and then four and eight, and then six and six. Yeah, three, two, uh, six four, six. six. Yeah. So when you go, to, uh, you know, two and ten into the next year, and then I don't see any improvement. That's why I then see or say this team. You know, that's why that's the reason that I won't have. A lot of confidence going forward but you know likewise when i see it into the season what i'm saying the end is in the entire second half of last year that's that's the only reason that kind of encourages me moving forward is that mm. for the first time in forever i've seen some kind of uh, marketable improvement um from from the year before and if you can turn that into a season that is then better than last season then it just it makes sense an object at rest stays at rest an object in motion stays in motion. If you continue to uh, to get better, there's no reason that you shouldn't then continue to get better. Winning's a habit and losing's a habit. All right. Wow. Yeah, I know. I'm right? kind I of on board. Worst, okay. <laughs> I think the worst, the absolute worst case scenario is if the non conferences just get dropped because oh the bowling games of the world can't do anything, and maybe in the spring you have a truncated eight game season where you'd play nothing but big 10 opponents and they drop Rutgers. <laughs> well, <laughs> but at that point, think... I mean, if you, if you look strictly at the big 10 schedule, I mean, what, maybe yeah. three and five. I don't know. Oh, I know that's are where the saying, non-conference is helpful. Are we saying if you go, if you drop the non-conference and you only have an eight game schedule, are we saying then that you have to go four and four? I guess. I guess. I, I guess. Like, are there bowl games? Not, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Are there bowl games? That, yeah, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we. <laughs> I keep on reading these articles. I'll search coronavirus vaccine to see the latest update. Like, please God, I please God. I can't do that. <laughs> I get too lost. Now, there, there's some promising stuff. So hopefully uh, Oxford gets it done. Before I let you guys go, though, speaking of treatments, uh, Harry, I understand that you've been going through a bit of a treatment yourself recently. <laughs> 
I'll tell you what, boys. So I was on the phone. I was on the phone with uh, with my dad yesterday. Actually, no. What had happened was it was Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. It was Mother's Day. Um, and for those of you out there that don't know, uh, my dad is is a uh, doctor. He used to be an orthopedic surgeon. Now I think he's a uh, medical advisor hmm. for uh, for Cigna. Cool. And my mom is a um, uh, internal medicine. She d- does. Uh, she used to. She used to do internal medicine. Uh, now she focuses more so on Botox. What's in has, What's internal medicine? Like when you go to the doctor, it's basically the doctor that you think of when you have to get a, a prescription. Oh, okay. It's uh, you know, you go to the doctor. The way my dad described it to me when I was four years old was, uh, "Dad, Daddy's a, a bone doctor. Mommy's a, a belly doctor." You know, like stuff that you. Stuff <laughs> That's that you cute. Take, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so, I uh, so whenever I have a question about medicine. I asked my mom mm-hmm. what her degree is in. So she she's best to ask about or better to ask that about than anyone. I don't know if that sentence makes sense. So I called my dad first, though, because I thought my mom might be at work. And I also know that a lot of times if I ask my mom stuff about this, then she'll maybe get a little bit more concerned. Actually, I haven't even said yet. I've been irregular mm-hmm. for a little <laughs> bit of time now. We're all adults here. It happens to the It happens to everybody. It happens to everyone. And and the Harry, I thought you were an irregular person for years now. It's oh, quite that's, you're, you, that's cute. But <clears throat> so so here's the the frustrating thing too is that <clears throat> this has been maybe a problem for a couple weeks now or whatever, and I've been eating my oatmeal, eating my vegetables, eating apples, eating all the good stuff that's supposed to kind of keep you going. Mm-hmm. Just hasn't. So I finally bit the bullet and I got a I got a laxative. I got a powdered laxative. And I called the old my mom. Metamucil. Yes. Is it the orange I, flavored or is it the white powder? It was white powder that you mix in. White powder. White powder. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mixed it in with uh, with some water and I'll tell you what, man. You sometimes have like crystal light or Kool-Aid or whatever mm-hmm. and it just it doesn't you kind of see the powder at the bottom. This stuff was clear. I couldn't see a speck of it. It was they did they know what they're doing over there at Clearlax. So it was um I called my dad I called my dad and said, Is this stuff good to take? I'm not sure if this, you know, is this kind, should I get this kind? Should I get the kind that comes in chocolate that you see in like Iron Giant? How long is it gonna take? All this stuff. And so he says he basically says, uh, yeah, you should be fine, you know, just kinda keep eating good and eat and make sure you take that and you'll, you'll be fine. Uh, and then I said, Oh, okay, well, I'll talk to you later. And he says, Harry, say hi to your mom. And I'm just like, Oh, and I, I'm not really thinking anything about it. <laughs> so then he puts her on the phone and she's like, Oh, hi, Harry. I'm like, mom, mom, is this laxative okay for me to take? Is it okay that I'm going to take this? Is this going to help me or am I going to be in a bad situation? So I'm talking to my mother on mother's day about, what laxative I should take that will help me get back into the flow of things. And it's not, of course, until I hang up the phone that I see a post on Instagram saying, like, you know, from any number of anyone that you follow, oh, my mom is the way or the reason that I'm as strong as I am today. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> I really just talked to, I just talked to my mom about what will help me with my next bowel movement. Hey, man. Yeah, but your mom saying, will be the reason why you're not constipated today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of which, man, this stuff, it I took it yesterday, nothing's happened. I am, uh, it's frustrating uh, yeah. as all hell. 
Yeah, oh, to me, so I, I texted you guys when Harry was texting us yesterday about this whole situation. I was like, you got to say this on the show. And then I had one that I think I had told on the show, but maybe only one of you heard it. But uh, this was Christmas a couple years ago. And as a stocking stuffer, uh, Kara really likes tea. So I will get some candies. I'll get what looks to be nice tea or something. And I stock, stuff the stocking. And we open it up on Christmas Eve and... She's like, oh, wow, thanks, you know. She looks at the tea thing. She's like, smooth move. I was like, yes, yeah, it's lavender. It looks, It's got a purple. Oh, no. And then right, I had missed it when I bought the thing. It says, relieves occasional constipation. And I said, oh, my God. I was. She's like, have I been having pro- problems recently? I was like, I mean, no, I don't know. I think you're fine. Subtle and, hint. But here's the deal. So what we would do is, if especially for travel, you know, it can be tough. You take a long car ride or you take an airplane ride and it just kind of changes things up a little bit. So I would pack it. And there are uh, two times that it has come in handy. One of them was as we were finishing up our trip to Punta Cana. And, you know, when you're down there, you're eating all this great buffet food and you're having these breakfasts with bacon and all that sort of stuff. Well, it's the day that we're about to fly out. And I'm already nervous anyways. I got to take the Xanax. I got to chill out before I get on the plane. And I had drank a t- cup of Smooth Move that morning with my fried plantains. Ooh. The entire day, and fortunately for the four-hour window that I was in the plane, didn't have to. But any time, it was just phew, like, holy God. The other time was in New Orleans for a buddy's bachelor party, which you're eating different, you're drinking a lot, and... This is four days, three days into it, and it had not been very good. We get to this hotel at this casino called Boomtown, and I say, screw it. I got to try smooth move. I got to go with the big guns. The next 24 hours were unbelievable. Like It it was the most relieving (laughs) 24 hours of my life. Every stop that we made on the way on the trip back up where it'd be a truck stop, I tried to make sure it was a nice pilot or loves truck stop because they have the nicer bathrooms. It, it was incredible. And I was you, I felt like a million bucks. Wow. You're like you're like Tom Hanks from the Green Mile, but instead of, you know, a UTI, it's just the other end. <laughs> Pretty much. Now and not to be discussing about it, but one other time was We've I, we've crossed that line. Yeah. That line. Is that I notice if I engage in something really exciting, okay, so it could be going to a concert or performing a concert. <laughs> Where is this going? Hold on, no, it's fine. After the Foo Fighters thing, okay, that was a Wednesday night, Foo Fighters. It wasn't until that Saturday, my body was all jacked up. It was like wow. all the all the endorphins and everything. I felt exhausted the next day for sure. But even Friday, I was like, man, I'm not quite 100%. I'm still kind of riding this weird buzz from that once-in-a-lifetime sort of thing. Finally, Saturday, and oddly enough, when Illinois was losing to Indiana at home in Lovey Smith's second year, I have to excuse myself during halftime and that'll make you do it. Yep. <laughs> it was, it was insane. And that's all I'll say. It was absolute insanity. I would say the rest of the story. I don't want to <laughs> turn people off from this podcast forever. Well, yeah. And you know how I had said, like what I told my mom got her into like, or every time I tell my mom anything, it'll be, um, you know, Oh yeah, you know, I went to the grocery store. I didn't get such and such because it was a little expensive. Boom! Next thing I see, there's there's money in my Venmo. You know, it's like she's the. I mean, every everyone says their mom is the best, but it's just every time I even kind of make some kind of hint, 
towards some kind of difficulty in any regard. It's what do you want me to get you? What can I get you? I, yeah. I'll get you this. I'll get you that. So of course, wow. Yeah, well, yeah. It, you know, I love my mom, and she does that. And it gets to the point where I have to be like, Mom, you know, I'm fine. You know, I want to, I want to do something. I want to do this on my own. So I'm asking her about this stuff. I'm like, Is this laxative good to take? She says, Yeah, that should be good. And then I just hear her kind of off, off to the side of the uh, the phone. Uh, my dad's name is John. She goes, Hey, John, should I get you know like the thirty or the ninety tablet thing? I'm going to send it. I'm like, What are you sending me? She's like, I'm going to send you these these tablets, and they they are like a godsend. And then I just hear my dad in the background saying, Harry, they're amazing. You have to try them. <laughs> oh man. All right, well, yeah. boys, that was a super-sized episode. After my little uh, preamble at the start of it, we're past the two-hour mark, so I'll let you guys get oh, going damn. with your with your Monday. Uh, we'll be back next Monday, of course, for the last bit of Last Dance and anything else that breaks throughout the week. But uh, maybe what we can end for old time's sake, before I, I'll give the sponsors real quick, and then we can end with a barbershop trio. Oh. Mm, perhaps. All right. Uh, you guys think for a second what we should sing on our way out. Something uh, about laxatives. Probably so. So you guys just think on that as I remind people that we are brought to you by (laughs) DP Doe online at dpdoe.com for all the best deals and prices, and they deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana. Fourth and Kirby online at fourthandkirby.com, the 200-level or 200-level coupon code for 10% off. And, of course, State Farm agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com. Got to thank Alana Inquirer and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. How should we end the episode Barbershop Trio style? Hmm. How about... Choco-lax. Choco-lax? Is that okay. what you're having? Okay. That's what I'll, That's my submission, but you guys, I'm... I'm no, I'm that's fine. That's fine. Okay, Choco-lax, who's, who's got the... Who, who's starting? Uh, I'll, I'll start. Harry, I'll you start, start. okay. Like, yeah, I'll start, okay. okay. Wait, who's okay. going second? I'll go second. Okay, all right, all right. All right. Wait, 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 hold on. Can you guys, can you guys see... <laughs> can you guys see in the video me do this sort of like cut sign yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay yeah, yeah. so then yeah. that's how we'll end it all right harry but it's gonna start. be okay. it's gonna be off but yeah okay okay go harry chocolate 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 yeah whatever that was, that was fine <laughs> it was okay <laughs> it is the 200 level <laughs> <laughs>